Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. I have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing intro, and if you want to hear his voice some more, his website is nativestorytellers.com. Um, he is a, a native storyteller, and he is an amazing man. Also, I have Chris of Curious Times to thank for my guest tonight. I am so excited that um, I have so many wonderful people that are out there looking for magnificently wonderful people to pull on the show, and Chris gave me the name of of tonight's guest, Robert Snow. Um, He served for 38 years at the Indianapolis Police Department, retiring in 2007 with the rank of captain. And while at the police department, he served in such capacities as police department executive officer, captain of detectives, and commander of the homicide branch. He's also been publishing a publishing writer for over 30 years, and he's had over 100 articles and short stories published in magazines like Playboy, Reader's Digest, The National Enquirer, quite a span there, The Writer, Police, The Saint Detective Magazine, and others. In addition, he's had 15 books published. Almost all of Captain Snow's published works were written so that the readers could use his knowledge of law enforcement to better protect themselves and their loved ones. He does have one book, however, that sort of stands out from all the rest, and that's the book we're going to be talking about tonight, and that's Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, and that tells the fascinating story of his transformation from skeptic to believer. As a veteran police detective, he you know, was devoted to evidence and hard facts. He's, he'd never given any thought to reincarnation, but during a hypnotic regression, he experienced a vivid awareness of being alive in three separate historical scenes. Remaining skeptical, he began to investigate with the intention of disproving reincarnation, and instead, diligent research and collaboration from multiple sources revealed solid evidence that he indeed had lived a former life as Carol Beckwith, a 19th century American artist. 
Welcome to the show, Robert. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. And yeah, I, I tell people all the time that, that the very best converts are the skeptics <laughs> because it takes it takes a ton of material to get them to admit that there are possibilities out there that they had not considered before. Well, I, I was one of the biggest, before I started my investigation, I was one of the biggest of skeptics. I thought reincarnation was just something that that people believed in so they wouldn't have to feel bad about their life. They could always blame it on karma from a past life type thing. And I believe, it, again, it was just wishful thinking. People who didn't want to think that we die, that's it. They wanted to think that the, that the things carry on. So I really didn't I didn't give it any credence at all when I, before I started this investigation. Well, it's, um, it is a big leap for people to take, for sure. And and I I know that uh, a lot of people you know don't believe in reincarnation and and lots of people think you know you live one life and that's it and you know that's it. Uh, however, um, you know I, I I do believe in reincarnation. I always have and and not not necessarily you know to blame junk in this life on that life, but. Every now and then I, I just say, you know what, I'm going to roll off, roll over all of the karmic debt I've accumulated to the next life. I'll never know what hit me anyhow. So, um, you know, there's that different philosophy. But, but being a police officer, I mean, that's, that's pretty hardcore stuff. And, but didn't, didn't you, though, from time to time sort of stick a big toe in the water and ask other police officers what they felt about the paranormal, the metaphysical, or reincarnation, and weren't you surprised at what you got from them? Yeah, well, actually, before I before I decided to write this book, after I had my regression investigated, I really still wasn't ready to write the book. <laughs> I mean, being a police <laughs> captain, this is not something police captains publicly uh, talk about. You don't talk about uh, New Age-type things like this, especially don't talk about believing them or have proof of them. So before I published the book, I started doing a little just – very, very casual interviewing around the police department to see how many other officers might have had any kind of experience. And I was kind of surprised at how many police officers have had paranormal experiences. I talked to a number of officers who've had out-of-body experiences. Interesting enough, it was always during a moment of intense stress, just a, a really, oh, yeah. really tense, tense moment they'd have an out-of-body experience. But the, the difference being, I talked to a lot of officers, I talked to officers and other, other types of paranormal experiences, but the difference being they would talk to me and other officers, but they wouldn't talk to anyone else. In other words, this was, this was an in-family in type thing, in, in-house, in-family type thing. So they, but they would tell me, but they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't tell anyone else. Because they, they might buy think, well, gee, this guy's you know, a little bit off. He slipped a couple of gears here, you know. And that's what people <laughs> would like, might think, you know. So most policemen... They will tell you. They will tell another policeman. They won't. They that they won't admit to anyone else outside of outside of police work. Well, I can understand that. You know, when when you think about, you know, everybody's belief or the archetype of a police officer, especially a homicide detective or whatever, um, you you get you get sturdy, down to earth people who who are not easily shaken by anything and and so you tend to put your trust into them because of that and um yeah and police officers you're you're trained to look for physical hard evidence that you can you can actually put your hands on you can present to, to a court of law and get a confidence so this kind of thing 
to actually prove something, I guess, is extremely difficult. It took me over two years before I was able to confirm what I'd seen during the regression because the, fa- the facts, again, the person, the person lived back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and record-keeping, as you're aware, even before computer uh-huh. time, is, not, is sketchy at best. It took me over two, almost over a little over two years to actually actually get it, you know, confirm all the facts I'd seen. Well, I I know you you made um, well. Let's let's go back to the beginning here, though. Let's let's start everybody off from. I've read the book, so I know I know all you went through. But but um, how did this come about that you even considered doing a past life regression? I would, I, did, I never would have to, but I what it is I. I've been long being a police officer for 38 years. Actually, I never really wanted to be a police officer. When I was growing up, that thought never really occurred to me. I never, the only thing I've ever wanted to be since my youngest days, four or five years old, remember, I've always wanted to be a writer. That's all uh-huh. I ever wanted to be. If anybody asked me, I want to be a writer. But anybody knows anything about being a writer, starting off, being a writer and living indoors are not necessarily synonymous. Writing doesn't no. pay much, especially at, very, at first. And so you have to have another job. And I was in the military during the Vietnam War when I, I was discharged after four years. And when I got out, my brother was a police officer in Indianapolis. And I was looking for a job. And he said, hey, they're hiring it because, you know, it's during the Vietnam War, so they were short on officers. So I thought, well, mm-hmm. why, you know, why not? You know, it's a fairly good-paying job and steady. So I went down and I applied and I joined. And it turned out to be a very fortuitous decision because not only did I have a, a job that paid money, you know, it kept me supported, but it gave me tons of materials to, to write about. Almost all, almost every bit of thing I've written about, all my books, my articles and short stories are all about police work. And so mm-hmm. it was really a fortuitous idea. But anyway, so to be, but being a writer, besides being a writer, you also have to be a reader. You can't, when you're a writer, you have to be a reader. You have to read everything from every different field because you need to see if mm-hmm. you see something, how somebody, a writer did, really did something really well. You want to study it so you do the same, you can do the same. Or if they did something poorly, see what they did so you don't. So, so anyway, I read a lot of books. And one of the books I read, just, just I used to order all, every kind of book to see, was a book called Coming Back by Dr. Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody had previously done an investigation of near-death experiences, and he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression therapy, which is basically hypnotizing people and supposedly take them to a past life to sort out problems in this life. But anyway, he had his friend, and she talked him into being hypnotized and supposedly take back to past lives. So he he did it, he did it and he wrote and so he did it and he went back to eight past lives and so he wrote his book about it. It's a very well written, very interesting book. But it's kind of funny at the end of the book he kind of hedges and says, "Yeah, I don't really know what this was. I don't know if this is really true or is my imagination." And that's kind of how I felt. But anyway, after this, uh-huh. oh, a few months later, I was at a party and I was talking to a lady who's a psychologist at the Indianapolis Police Department. And we were talking, just making casual stuff about movies we'd seen and books we read. And I said, I remember this book. And I told her about this book, and she wanted to know what I thought about it. Now, at this moment, I didn't know that the psychologist, she actually used past life regression therapy herself. And I kind of uh-huh. made fun of it. I, I, you know, I was kind of late in the party. I'd been drinking and I probably got a little obnoxious. And I'd making fun of past life regression, how silly I thought the whole concept of past life re- reincarnation was. Well, I got down to the point, I got irritated enough that she basically dared me. She said, well, she dared me to try it to see if I thought it was a foolish. And at first I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But then you got to the point, she said, oh, you're scared. Nah, you know, you don't want to ask a man if he's scared, you know, especially if he's been at a party, been drinking. So I, I eventually agreed. I said, well, I'll do it to show you that this is stupid. Well, then the next day, being a little more clear-headed, I said, I ain't doing that. You know, I'm not going to do it. But it seems like after this, I would run to this psychologist every day. 
before this time, I didn't see her every couple of months. But it seemed like I'd run to her every day, and then she'd always ask me, have you made the appointment yet? She'd given me a card with the name of a colleague of hers who did pass our regression that I was supposed to call. And, you know, I got to the point where I'd see her, and like, oh, God, there she is again, you know, down the hall. And you know you've got to make up some flimsy, feeble excuse. So finally, mm-hmm. after enough times, I got tired of it, and I just said, well, I, I got kind of irritated. I thought, well, I made this, so I called made the appointment, and I talked to the lady about coming, I was going, and she said, yeah, I can bring my own tape recorder. So what I was going to do, I was going to go to the session, cooperate 100% with this lady, bring a tape recorder along, record the session, and show my psychologist at the police department how silly all this was, how foolish it was. And that's basically how I got talked into doing a past life regression. Well, I think I think one of the interesting things, and you describe you describe the entire process meticulously in your book, and one of the things that, that I think it's important for a lot of people to understand is you you are consciously aware that you are consciously aware. It's not well, like, you know, you, it, 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 it feel, yeah, you kind of are talking to yourself, this can't be, you know, this is silly, this is foolish, this is what, you know, I can feel my hands cramping, I can feel the rest of me cramping, I'm not hypnotized. And then suddenly you realize that there was a different um, kind of awareness that you were in. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Griffith, the lady who did the hypnotism on me, we went through probably 20, 25 minutes. She, she employed a lot of imagery and her hypnosis, a lot of energy. And I was, and I had made the decision before I went there, I was going to cooperate 100% with her, do everything she asked me to do, so I could go back and later and show the police department psychologist how silly it was. So anyway, <laughs> we went to about oh, 20 minutes at least, maybe longer, of, of a lot of imagery, you know, you know, describe this, describe that, a lot of imagery. And it, it is funny because I was, and I was cooperating, and I kept thinking to myself how silly this was. I thought, what an idiot I am for coming, you know, here, you know, I'm just sitting here, like, yeah. you, know, you look, if, you felt kind of, I felt kind of foolish because, I really didn't think I could be hypnotized, to tell you the truth. I thought I was too strong, but obviously I wasn't. But <laughs> so, you know, suddenly, at, at, during this thing, she, she, we, were, she, we were part of the thing. She, she was counting steps, me to walk down steps. So, you know, she'd count backwards. And she doing the psychology thing, you know, 10, 9, you know, this long numbers <laughs> thing. And, I, and I'm thinking, at the moment, yeah. I'm almost laughing. I'm thinking, how, I'm thinking how silly this is. When she got to 1, it was I see I was I was in a valley and it wasn't I just imagine I was in a valley or a daydream, I was in a valley. Now I knew I was also sitting on the couch. I could feel a couch under under my under my buttocks. I could feel my sitting on the couch. I I could feel my hands folded in my lap. I knew I was still in the room, but at the same time I was in the valley and it, it was it was so vividly it was as vividly clear as I felt. I'd open my eyes and look around the office. It was just as clear as that. And the interesting part was I noticed when I was in this valley it was real heavily forced. And I could see the leaves moving on trees, and I could feel a breeze in my face. Now, at the moment, I thought that's just the air conditioning in the office, all of this. Now, I uh-huh. knew right then. I mean, I knew I wasn't real stupid. I realized right then I'd been hypnotized. I realized, okay, you're not as strong as you thought, Bob. You had been hypnotized. But the, what struck me more about anything was just how the clarity of it. It was. I mean, I could look at leaves. I could see the veins in the leaves on the, if I, when I, as I walked along this valley. As I, if you, you could see everything vividly clear. Now, to me, that was I, what I thought at the moment. This is like... If you if you go to Disney World or some big amusement park, they have some really wonderful rides that are tremendously realistic. They're not, yeah, but you know you're not. I mean, the, the ride itself is very realistic. It's what's happening, but mm-hmm. you know it's not real. And that's why I thought this was. I thought this is tremendously realistic. I couldn't believe how clear it was, but I knew it was just my subconscious mind dredging up old memories and reordering them, you know, to make a story. And that's all. That's all I thought uh-huh. it was at the time. But. So we, so Dr. Griffith and I went through several, you know, a couple of different different lives and 
till we finally got to the one that would I could. The problem was the first two lives, the first couple of lives, uh, two of them were so far back in history you couldn't confirm either. You know, there was no record. Yeah, or anything, tell, so tell really everybody couldn't. what. She she asked you to look at your feet in the first well, one. Well, in the very first one, I didn't realize till I later on when I got home and listened to the tape again. She told me, "said I want you to go back to the very first life you lived on Earth." Now I don't I didn't remember her at the, at the moment when it happened. I didn't remember her saying that, but I heard it on my tape later on. Well, when I the first very first uh, set the life I went to, I looked down. I I had it was, I was wearing fur. And I was wearing fur and I was carrying part of a tree limb in my hand. Now I knew what this was. You know, everybody knows what cavemen look like. I everybody's seen movies and all the TV programs about cavemen. I knew what this was, and you know, so I described it to her. You know, I I was really a dirty, you know, some really dirty matted, you know, fur, and I was, you know, barefooted, and I was carrying a piece of a tree limb in my hand. And I, and again, at the time, I thought, I thought, you know, what this was. I thought this was the most amazing amusement park ride I've ever been on. I mean, I really did. I thought this was because I want. It was fun. It truly was. I because I again, I didn't think it was true. I didn't think there was any validity to it. I thought it was just old memories or old movies and program I'd seen. And so I thought it was cool. I, I really, I was enjoying it cause, only because it was it was so vivid and so realistic. And I described her. I was a cave, and I told her I lived in a cave up on the hill. And so she asked me to go to the cave. And the funny thing is, like I said, I walked in a cave and I, I could smell. It was really odd because it had a real. This guy was not very hygienic. It was an awful, disgusting <laughs> smell. I walk into the cave. Now you know you're thinking, I'm sitting on. I knew I'm still sitting on the couch. I can still I can still hear Dr. Griffith moving the chair next to me, and I can hear the noise on the street outside. But I'm also I'm in this cave, and I can smell. And then for a minute I thought, you know, where could that come from? You know, you couldn't. You know, you understand? Cause I, could actually, I could actually smell. It was again. This guy was not. He was not terribly hygienic. Well, there, there wasn't antiseptic then either, so. Yeah. So, so she took you to your moment of death. Yeah, she she took me to my death, and interesting enough, at the first part of the of the regression, I was in this person's body, and she said, "Go to his death," and I found myself. I wasn't in the body long. I was floating above the body, looking down on it. I could see the body. Mm-hmm. And then she, she started, you know, and then she's, you know, we I described once like a little skinny little guy with covered in fur, and he was coughing real hard and shivering. I don't, he was dying. I don't know what he's dying of, but it, was, it looked pretty painful. So we went out. She said, "Go out in the valley." So I went out in the, in the valley, and she said, "Look up. Do you see a light?" And there was a bright light above the valley. And she says, "Then first thing she says, what what did you learn about this life?" And I told her it was a bad life. That I, it was because I was alone. I said I never had anybody in this life. It was a really bad life to be alone. I don't know. You know, again, the funny thing is when you're under hypnosis like this and regression, you start saying things before you know you're going to say them. I mean, in, in, uh-huh. in regular conversation, you always have a split second to think what you're going to say before you say it. In this case, I was saying things before I knew I was going to say them. It's just, they just kind of blurred out my mouth. And I said, this is a bad life because I was alone, didn't have anyone. So she told me, she said, okay, she says, go into the light. I want you to go to a light, to a life that you did have someone. So I... You know, I see myself going to the light, and there'd be, oh, three or four seconds of just like gray fog. You couldn't see anything. And the next thing I come out, and I was staying, I was walking along the sidewalk. It was a large city. Interesting enough, it was a real sunny day, and I could feel the sun beating down on me, which was really odd because I was sitting in a really darkened office. But uh-huh. I was walking, but I look, I could look around. I could see this wasn't present day because there were horse-drawn carriages and gas lights on the street. So I figured it was probably the late 1800s. So, she, again, she asked me to describe, I described what I was wearing and, and all that. And she asked me where I was going. I told her I was going to meet a woman. 
So she said, okay, go, you know, meet the woman where you go. And I told her, you know, we went to an outdoor cafe. And I'm describing the whole experience. You know, she ordered some kind of special water, and I ordered a glass of wine. And, and we, then she kept going on to, you know, going different scenes in your life of this life. We went to very, you know, different different scenes of this life and all. And the next scene was I was arguing in a hallway with a woman who was apparently my wife. We was having a really, I don't, I never, I don't know what the argument was about, but it was a pretty vigorous argument. And I just got mad and stormed away. And I went to a room, and it was an artist studio. And there were just, just there was dozens of paintings hanging on the wall. And above me was was a skylight, and the one side of the wall was all wall windows. And I'll, suddenly, again, I knew, and again, I didn't know if Bob Snow didn't know this, but the person's body I was occupying at the time knew this is where I work, that I was an artist, and this is where I worked. And, you know, again, and, and, and at the time, I thought, again, I, you know, I'm getting thinking this is movies or books or TV is all it is, mm-hmm. you know, because I've never had any talent in art at all, the slightest bit. But the person's body I was having was definitely, was definitely an artist. Well, in this life, she finds me, said, okay, go to your death. She says, go to your death and tell me what you what you regret about this life. And I told her that I regret my wife and I didn't have any children because my wife couldn't have children. And, again, I didn't know who I was talking about, who this guy was. I just kind of told her, you know, this kind of come out of my mouth before I knew it was going to come out. Well, then I saw myself rise out of the body and go through the ceiling. But then I, I didn't find this terribly amazing. Everybody's seen ghost stories. They all, of course ghosts can do that. They go out and come out sure. of the body and go through the roof a roof. Of this uh, the room I was in, and now suddenly I, I was I it was I was over a very I mean a huge city. It was it was lights to the horizon. It was a, I was over a you know, huge huge city. Well, the funny thing is, Doc Griffith said, "Okay, now go back to the light." Now people always think when you're under hypnosis, you're under control of hypnosis. That's not really true. I knew exactly what was going on and what what to do and what not to do. I mean, you always see these things where people get you up on stage, make you cluck like a chicken. Under hypnosis, yeah. you still know you know everything. It's not true. You know what's going on because she told me, she says, "All right, go into light." But I didn't. I saw myself flying through some woods, and I could tell it would look like fall. It was like it looked like a cold, crisp night, but the trees still had their leaves. So anyway, next thing I know, I'm looking in the second or third story of this mansion, and there's a painting over a fireplace. There's a real roaring fire in the fireplace, but the room's empty. But there's a fire in the picture. And she and I, she keeps telling me, said, go to the light. And I said, and I wouldn't, but I wouldn't do it. I had something I want to do first. So I went there, and she and I finally told her I wanted to see one of my paintings before before I left the earth. I wanted to see one of my paintings, and it was a painting of a still life over the fireplace. Uh-huh. And so, but then I, then after that, I went to the light, and she, this is this is the funny. But she told me, said, okay. She said, now go to your life when you were a female. And I remember thinking myself, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> and but it did, but it did, but it did. And the next life was as a Greek altar girl. And of course, back in ancient Greece. But it's one of these things where this is so far. But like the caveman, there's no way you could verify this one way or the other type thing. You know, yeah. so it was back. You know, the, you know, a couple thousand years ago. But interesting enough, in this one, when she took my death, I I was at, in a fishing village, and I got caught in a net while they were fishing, and I drowned. And I was, as I was feeling this, I could taste salt water. And I thought, how, how bizarre, how bizarre that was, that I could actually taste salt water as I was drowning. And this, and this, fortunately, Dr. Griffith got me out of it pretty fast because that's a pretty traumatic thing to see you to experience yourself dying. Oh, yeah. Well, so anyway, then she told me, she said, okay, I want you to go to your most recent life before Bob Snow. Go back to the life you were before you were Bob Snow. So I said, okay, so it was, about, again, about three or four seconds of uh, gray fog. Then I was back in the body of the artist again. I recognized it was the same person. And I was at that time, I was in my studio, and I'm painting a portrait 
But interesting enough, the portrait is of a hunchback woman, which I thought was really, but really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm actually been painting of a hunchback woman's portrait, and I, the thing is, I'm just finishing the portrait. And the, the the progression is so clear; I can see every brush stroke in this painting, and I'm just I'm just I'm just finishing the painting. And I, and I remember looking at that, looking at the painting, looking at her, and thinking, you know, wow, <laughs> wow. But again, I didn't think it was any, I didn't think it was anything. Again, I think again, my, I thought I've seen this painting somewhere in this life, you know, somewhere uh-huh. I've seen it, and you, my subconscious mind just regurgitating this stuff to make it look like I'm doing it. Well, Dr. Griffith took me to a couple more instances in this in this in the artist artist's life, and anyway, and she every time she does, she says, "Go five years forward, go five years forward." Well, anyway. One of the times she told me, she said, go five years forward. Okay. So I'm in kind of the gray fog in between lives. And all of a sudden I blurred out, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, I had no idea who I was talking about. But I knew it was obviously somebody very, very important to this person, this person's body, this person's artist. Because I, all of a sudden I feel like I want to cry. I could feel, I could feel tears. I could feel myself welling up like I wanted to cry. And I had, I had no idea who I was talking about, but whoever this woman is, a dive of blood clot was very important to him. Then right after that, the tape recorder I'd, I'd taken with me clicked off suddenly, and I opened my eyes, and then it was over. That was that was it. Uh-huh. It was kind of funny because now, now I'm feeling kind of foolish because I'd gone there so <laughs> sure of myself, so 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 sure that nothing would happen. I just you know just now I, would, I was really flustered. I didn't know what to do after it was over. I mean, it'd been so vivid, and so realistic. I knew I knew it wasn't. I was certain it wasn't true, but obviously it surprised me for what happened. I could see at that moment why people would believe it was true. I could understand how a person less gullible than me would believe this was a true life, being that being so vivid. But anyway, Doctor Griffith asked me, you know, you know, what are you going, you know, what did you learn from these lives that applied to your life? And I could, you know, I was just wanting to get out of there, so I, I just mumbled something. About it. I needed time <laughs> to think about it and all, and the road, you know, and I just got, I got out of there real fast. And you know, then I, I got out and I sat in my car for a while out, out in the parking lot, and I, and I kept thinking about what I'd just seen during this. And the, the problem was what I what I saw. The problem was the clarity of it. I just, I couldn't imagine where these memories had come from. They'd be so clear, so vivid. And so basically, I, I finally, after I sat there probably half hour in my car trying to sort this out because it was really bugging me because I couldn't imagine having these kind of memories this clear, but they weren't memories that I could recall in my conscious mind. So obviously they were somewhere buried deep in my subconscious. So, and I just, you know, finally I kept telling myself, Bob, let it go. Just forget about it. It's just, it's, you know, it's just subconscious memories. So you've seen it and you forgot it, and now you brought it back up. It's all there. And I kept trying to tell myself that, that just forget about it. But I found in the days to coming, in the days after this, I couldn't stop thinking about this. I just simply, I, I would think about it 50 times a day about the regression. And interesting enough, during the first couple of years after the regression, if I closed my eyes, I could still see the paintings, both of them. I could see clear, especially the painting of the hunchback woman. I could see every single, I could close my eyes and see every brush stroke in that painting. And, that, wow. and it, kind of, it just bugged me. It started bugging me because I kept thinking. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Constantly, I'd think about it day, all the time. Every day I'd think about it constantly. And it started bugging me. After, after a month or so, it started bugging me because to me, as a police officer, I've dealt with people who have serious obsessions before. And believe me, it seldom turns out well for the persons having the obsession. <laughs> having really <laughs> deep obsessions seldom turns out good for you. And so it got me worried about, you know, about this. This is really kind of really, kind of, really got a grip on me. So I decided, well, what I need to do, I need to find the, the still life I saw over the fireplace in the mansion or the picture of a hunchback woman. I need to find them. 
once I find uh-huh. them, I'll remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw that. You know. You know, five years, ten years ago. I'll remember where I saw yeah. that. So my idea was now these, these occurred. This occurred in 1992 before the before the internet. And so in those days, you couldn't just pull up a search engine, search engine and type in hunchback woman painting and get some results. In those days, you had to, when you did research, you had to go to the library and pull books off the shelf. So my idea was to go to the Indianapolis Public Library and go through the art section, start pulling art books off the shelf until I found one of these paintings. I figured they had to be at least semi-famous because I'm not much of an art fan. I don't know much, very much about art at all. I've never been a big fan of art or anything, so I figured they had to be famous for me to see them and remember them. And so my plan was to go, to go through the books till I found one. I figured that would snap to, but there it is. You know, case closed. I saw it, you know, 10 years ago. There is there is nothing supernatural or otherworldly about this. But unfortunately, I found a, a really distressing fact. The Public Library has hundreds, not dozens, but hundreds of art books. And it took me several months, and I've t- I went through every single one of them. But I, I, I finally did, and I didn't find the paintings. Now, wow. that started really bugging me. That started bugging me because I was like, come on now, these got to be famous. Got to. So what I said then, I thought, so I started building, uh, visiting bookstores around, around the area, you know, Borders and Barnes and & Noble and what have you. Looking at the guy, I figured they'd have newer art books. Again, trying to find the paintings. But I couldn't. There was not, they weren't there. They simply weren't there. So then I thought, you know, I'm not one to give up easy. You know, part of detective work, people don't realize this. You know, on TV, always look great. You're chasing people and shooting out. Now, most of your detective work is done through hard, hard work, drudgery type work of sorting through facts, looking through reams of documents to find the, the evidence you want. And this is what oh, this absolutely. is going to be. So what I decided to do then, I thought, so I started visiting some art galleries around the area and described the paintings to them to see if they, you know, I figured, come on, how many paintings of Hunchback Woman could there be? I mean, there, that would have to be fairly, I thought that had to be fairly unique, wouldn't it? But I found something really interesting. In those days before <laughs> the Internet, there was no central listing of paintings. Yeah, in other words, you couldn't have you couldn't just say I want a I want a so and so painting. Uh, you know, as you might say, we out it's a disc gallery here. You had to I just start calling art dealers and see if they knew where it was at. But so I visited probably a half dozen galleries, and all of them told me the same thing. They didn't know. They never heard the Hunchback Woman painting. Number one, and number two, that the only way I could find out is to call start calling art galleries around the United States. So fi- oh, finally, wow. I tell you. And finally, because let me tell you, when I was in charge of the homicide brand, I was in charge of homicide for a number of years in Indianapolis, and we had a we had an eighty three percent clearance rate, which is pretty, which is really outstanding for a city of our size. But that still means uh-huh. that seventeen percent of our murders every year went unsolved, and I and so we have cases we simply can't solve. And what we do with those, you simply deactivate them, put them on the shelf, and then you don't work you don't work them anymore until unless you get new evidence. And I figured that's what's going to happen in this case. I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything else to do. What else I could do? To you know, to try and find the paintings, and so I finally decided I'll just forget about the case. I'll just put it on the shelf. I said, "Just Bob, you don't think about it anymore." Of course, that's always a nice thing to say. It didn't work, so because I kept thinking about it constantly. Yes, but it's I couldn't think. I couldn't think, think of any other avenue. Yes, it's Excuse sort me? of like telling someone not to think about puppies. Yeah, I simply couldn't think of anything else to do. So I basically just couldn't do anything. I decided to let it go, and so. Finally, after a couple, I just didn't do anything, but I kept thinking about it. Finally, a couple months later, it was coming toward my wife and I's anniversary, and she, we were wanting to go on a trip somewhere we haven't ever been before. So we call. She called me one day at the office and said, "Hey, what do you think about New Orleans?" And neither of us had ever been to New Orleans. We thought, "Hell, that'd be why not?" 
be kind of a fun trip, right? Our anniversary is late April, so it'd be, it'd be nice down there before college students and before the mosquitoes, probably. So we made we uh-huh. made a plan to go to New Orleans, and we spent a week there and had a great time. My wife's a real history buff, and if you go to New Orleans, you everywhere you turn, you can't throw a rock without hitting something historical. So it was every oh, yeah. so we visited all kind of plantations and battlefields and all kind of stuff. Anyway. We also, at nighttime, of course, we go in the French Quarter and listen to the band, go to the Vista Bars, listen to the bands. But I noticed as we go in there every night, there are a lot of really interesting stores in the French Quarter that, you know, memorabilia stores, antique stores, but they are always closed when we went to, late at night to the bars. So anyway, the last day we were there, our plane didn't leave till the evening, so we had all day left. And I suggested that we go window shopping in the French Quarter, to, you know, that day. My wife thought it was a good idea, so we did. We went visit a lot of stores, and we finally got to Royal Street. And in, in, in the night, early 1990s, Royal Street in New Orleans was all art galleries, and so we started we started visiting the Hilton Art Gallery and had some boy some magnificent paintings and some of these beautiful beautiful artwork. But I noticed as we're walking down the street going to art gallery, the art galleries are getting smaller and the paintings more obscure. Well, anyway, we finally got down to an art gallery at the end of the street in Royal Street, and walk in. It's two two stories, and it said Modern Art Upstairs. My wife's always a fan of modern art. I never have been. So she goes upstairs, and I just start walking along the first floor. And I'm just I'm looking at the paintings. I don't recognize any artists. Again, I don't recognize the paintings or any of the artists. None of them are world masterpieces or famous paintings. Or just, you know. So I'm just walking on looking. So I get to the corner, and there's a portrait on an easel. And I walk by, and I give it a glance. And I walk, and I stop like I'd run to a glass wall. And I turn around. It was the portrait of the hunchback woman. Now, let me Whoa. tell you, as a police, police officer of 38 years, I've been, I've, been, I've been scared a lot. There's lots of times, and don't kid yourself, police work is scary. Police work can be very, don't care who you think you are, how brave you are. Police work is, can be scary. But the difference is, in police work, when you run into scary situations, you have training and experience. You know the mm-hmm. best actions to take and what the person's response is going to be, so you don't feel as quite a bad. In this case, I had no experience, no training. I, I was I was stunned and frightened because I had no idea of what was going on. I mean, here I mean, what are the odds that I've the painting I saw in regression I searched for for months would suddenly I just stumble onto accident in a you know in a art gallery a thousand miles from my home? That, wow. the, come on, the odds the odds are just tremendous. And so I'm standing looking at this painting. And at first I told myself, No, Bob, this looks like the painting. It's it. It's close. It's not the real painting. That's all it is. But the thing is, I closed my eyes. And again, in those days, I could still see. I could see every brush stroke of the painting. I'd open my eyes. And it was the painting. There's no doubt. It was the painting. So then I start feeling with the idea, maybe I'm not really there. Maybe I'm in a nursing home somewhere. I'm in a nursing home in a bed with a tube. Well, you mean, you, you, I was struggling, struggling. First, come on, there's got to be some concrete, rational explanation for this. These, th- right. these things may happen in the movies. They might happen on TV. They don't happen in real life. Things like this do not happen in real life. That's what I kept telling myself. Things like this do not. They might happen on the X-Files or on some science fiction movie. <laughs> they don't happen in real life. And I didn't know what to do. I'm staring at this painting. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's, it, was, it, was, it was so surreal, surrealistic. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I just stood there and looked at it and kept looking at it. And I kept trying to find one reasonable explanation, one, some rational explanation for how this could be here, how I could be seeing this, but I couldn't come up with one. Anyway, I was probably standing there maybe five minutes when I, one of the salesmen apparently thought, hot dog, you know, I got a customer here. So he came over uh-huh. and he says, I bet you're thinking how nice I look over your fireplace. <laughs> I Maybe at the moment I thought, yeah, I want a picture of a hunchback woman out over my fireplace. Right. So, <laughs> and, and remember, I remember correctly, I, I remember the price tag I make was $5,000 at that time. 
Oh my of course, gosh. Painting, paintings are like used cars. You know, the the, pay, the price tag don't really you could it's for room negotiation, but still. I was still convinced, even though this was amazingly bizarre to find this thing, I was still convinced I had seen it somewhere in this life. Because people have asked me later on, why didn't they buy the, why did I buy the painting when I was there? Simply because I still believed I had seen it somewhere in life. I wouldn't go and spend four or $5,000 for a picture of a hunchback woman, then get home and say, oh, yeah, I saw this you know, <laughs> 10 years ago somewhere. And my wife would have, my uh-huh. wife would have killed me, and I wouldn't blame her, you know. And that's why I didn't buy it. But anyway, I, I told the uh, the uh, salesman, I said, uh, say, I don't recognize the artist. Who's the artist? He said, well, hang on a second. I got a little bio over here. So he went over to the desk and pulled out. He had a piece of just an 8 by 11 piece of paper. had a little small paragraph on it and said the man's name was James Carroll Beckwith. And the thing is, I started reading the biography, and it's just kind of it kind of gripped me, and you know, kind of like a claw in my chest because I noticed, I noticed five different things on the, the – uh, Biography that I had I had seen during the aggression, and that, you know that's like whoa. But then I thought, man, Bob, hang on, Bob. If you've seen this painting somewhere, you probably saw a little bio of the artist along with the painting, and that's all it is. This is nothing yeah. otherworldly or supernatural. You, if you've seen this painting somewhere <laughs> in this life, you saw a little bio, and that's why the that five things match. That's all there is to it. So anyway, so I wrote down the information, you know, date of birth, date of death, and the information about him and his name, James Carroll Beckwith, and I thought, well. Now, this case I put on the shelf can be reactivated. I have new evidence. I know who the artist is. I'll go back to Indianapolis. I'll research James Carroll Beckwith. Then I'll know exactly where this all came from. I'll know where all these memories come from. It's nothing, you know, you know, otherworldly or supernatural. It's, it'll all be rationally explained. So anyway, we got back to Indianapolis. So the next morning, after, I went back to the library, and I found kind of interesting fact that James Carroll Beckwith was not a very famous painter at all. He really wasn't because in the art books, in, in small art books, he was not mentioned at all. He, he in any some large art art reference books, he'd have maybe a few sentences about him. He was apparently simply a port did mostly portraits during his life. He lived in New York City in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he did mostly portraits, but nothing of nothing outstanding, nothing world class, nothing anybody ever recognized. And I thought it was kind of bizarre. I thought, my, you know, that this little, how could I, how could I know all this stuff about this guy if he's so, you know, when would I assume he is so commonplace and so, un, you know, unremarkable? How did I know about him? So you know, the lady at the library, the librarian told me, says, I tell you what you need to do. She says, go up to the uh, art museum library. Uh, we have an art museum in Northside Indianapolis, so they have a much bigger reference art, art reference library. So I thought it was a good idea. So I left and drove up to the art museum and went to the library and lady there was extremely helpful and she found some more references to Beckwith. She found about five, you know, some more references to him. Interesting enough, each one was another confirmation of things I'd seen. Nothing huge in itself, nothing, nothing huge, but each one, one more confirmation of something I'd seen. And, but the thing, the thing that really startled me up at the library, it was, it was a book about John Singer Sargent, a very, one of our very famous American painters, probably you know, next to Whistler, probably the most famous American painter. But uh, anyway, and the, the little incident about Beckwith, at the bottom was a footnote, said this information came from the diaries of James Carroll Beckwith, now on file to National Academy of Design in New York City. So right then I thought, well, th- there, there's a source. There, Because, there, again, she didn't have very much at the public library either. The only thing, it was kind of one thing that came up was really kind of funny. She said, oh, she says, well, I got a folder on an exhibition of Beckwith's work that was held by Harry Nappos. And for a few seconds, all of a sudden, my heart leaped. My chest said, yes, I knew it. There was an exhibition of Beckwith's work here in Indianapolis, and that's where I saw that. 
Unfortunately, the exhibition was in 1911. That was the <laughs> last time he had one. That was the last time he had one here. Again, again, he it was, it was he was just wasn't big enough to have any new ones. So anyway, so I went I went I went home. I look I researched it and found the address of the National Academy of Design, and I wrote him a letter and told him I was researching James Carl Beckwith. I naturally I didn't say why, but uh-huh. I told him I was researching James Carl Beckwith, and that you know I understand they had his diaries. Is it possible to view them? Well, and well, a week or two later, I got a letter back that you know the the diaries are extremely fragile. Nobody nobody can handle them. But they had had microfilm made of them, and if I went to the Archives of American Art at Smithsonian, I could get microfilms of the diary. And so I thought, well, I need to look at this. You know, come on, maybe something, maybe something yeah. will, will, will explain where this all come from. So I ordered the microfilm, and they said it would be about a week or so to get there. So during that time, during that week, I sat down, and I got my tape out of the, of the regression, and I sat down and wrote down every fact I had said about Beckwith that could be proved. And I found I had 28. I had 28 different facts that could be proved or disproved about Beckwith. So I wrote them down to know what to look for in the in the uh, in the diaries. But actually, tell you what truth that what I was really looking for at this time wasn't confirmation. I already had about 10 really small, you know, minor confirmations. But what I was really looking for, I wanted to find the disproving fact. In other words, I wanted to yeah. find. For example, I said I, t- I said. She asked me, and Dr. Griffith asked me, what do you regret about this life? And I said, I regret we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. Well, if he had kids, then this is not true. Now, this, if I could find something about Beckwith's life that wasn't true, then yeah. this is not a real memory. This is not. This is some kind of mishmash thing. I mean, I still don't know what it was, but it's not a real memory. It's not a past life or a real memory. So my, my idea about getting the diaries was to find one one really good fact I'd said about him. For example, if, nobody, if no woman important to him had died of a blood clot, then this this is not a real life. This is not real. This is not real. This is some kind of mishmash of my memories messed up. So all there is to it. So anyway, I finally I finally got the the, the diaries came at the end of the week. But I found this really distressing fact: Beckwith started his diary at age 19, and he was very very faithful yeah. about putting it. He he kept a diary till the day before his death at age 65. There were 17,000 pages of diary. Now Holy you think, well, what do you do now? So what I what I finally I didn't know what to do. But then I found out that including the diaries was his autobiography. I thought, great, great, that'd be even better. He had his autobiography. Unfortunately, he started in the spring of 1917, and he, when he was pretty ill, and he died in the fall, and he only got 21 pages done, which didn't which didn't try. To, and they were all about his youth, so it didn't really help. It didn't really help at all. So what I decided to do was just kind of thumb through the diaries and see if I could find anything. You know, and just kind of maybe just take a quick look at the different, you know, the different spools and see if I could find anything. And interesting, I was looking in, like I said, I looked at the one different fact. For example, I saw him order a glass of wine at the outdoor cafe in, in New York when he's meeting, meeting a woman. So I thought, well, if he's a teetotaler, then or that, or he, well, he doesn't, well, he only drinks whiskey, then you know, the least might be the stream fact. So I found uh-huh. for some reason, I don't know why, he exerted part of his diary and typed it. it was just about a few pages, just a few pages of it. And he was talking about, and he was actually stud- he studied art in Paris for five years, and as a matter of fact, he was roommates with John Singer Sargent, the famous painter. They were roommates while they both went to the same art school. Anyway, he he wrote he he exerted this part of his diary about a summer he when he's out of school he just kind of tramped around Europe. He was talking about living in Venice and how he lived on burnt eggs and wine. And again, you think, ah, hell. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work. So anyway, 
after I couldn't really find I, I, I never could find when I was just thumbing through this, going through the diaries, I never could find the disproving fact. The one fact I wanted to find that would disprove it. Anyway, so I kept so I finally what I finally did after I kept looking through them, I actually had a hard copy made of the diary. I figured that's the only way because you you could only keep the microphone for two weeks. You had to work down to the library, and you know, and to make copies was a real pain those days. What they didn't have oh, yeah. the, the other, it was a pain making them. So anyway, I had hard copy made of the diary, and I sit down, and it took me over a year. I read every single page of it, read every page of his diary. And wow. they, they, you know, they really, they, you know, like I said, after a while, I kept, I just kept finding, you know, again, now that, you know, again, like I said, I did that, for example, you know, I did, did he, did he, I thought, well, did he paint the portrait of the hunchback woman? Now, if you can't find, now, surely this would be big enough in your life, there'd be some mention of your diary. And sure enough, in the, the diary of 1912, he has three different mentions about painting a hunchback woman. And interesting enough, he describes the, the uh, his artist studio where he was doing it at. And he described it as being a long room full of paintings, skylight above, and a wall of windows, which was exactly the same thing I saw. And yeah. it's one of those things. It's like, hello. <laughs> each, each, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kept going. It kept getting. You know, you kept kept finding these things that nothing. I never I couldn't find this prove it. Then I kept thinking, well, I got to find the one major thing. Where like the fact not having children. Well, I got to his diary. I got to October twenty fourth, eighteen eighty eight. Which and it turned out his wife had a ser- very serious miscarriage that day, and because of that they could never have children. And it's interesting because in his diary he mentions how often how he wanted children so bad, but his wife couldn't. They didn't have children because his wife couldn't have children. Now, by that time I had gotten to probably number eighteen or nineteen on my list of twenty-eight, and, and yeah. every one had been confirmed. And I, I, I wasn't sure what to do. I was still flustered. So finally, though, when I got, I finally got to. Uh, when I got to December 5th, 1886, he makes a mention in his diary about his mother. Now, I told you, when I, when I said about the blood, I said a woman died of a blood clot, uh, the doctor said she died of a blood clot, I knew uh-huh. there was, Beck, reading Beckwith, about Beckwith's diary, there were only two women who were so really important to his life. His wife, Bertha, who he loved dearly, and he was, he, they were married till the day until he died, and his mother. His mother, he loved dearly. His dad was a wholesale grocer in Chicago. And he did not approve of Beckwith wasn't being an artist. He told him he, that's the best way he knew of starving to death. He wanted Beckwith yeah. to go into the wholesale grocery business. Beckwith wanted to be an artist. So his dad did not approve at all. But his mother bought him his first paints, his easel, first easel and brushes, and she encouraged him. I mean, he dearly loved his mother. So anyway, in his diary on December 5th, 1886, he talked about his mother being in church and dying of a stroke called by a blood clot. You know, I think, you know, I think that was probably the fact that pushed me over the, over the edge type thing where now you can, come on, you can, you know, you can see a lot of, you might see a painting and see all bio. They're not going to tell you what his mother died of. They're simply not going no. to do that. I mean, there's some facts that, you know, are so obscure that, you know, and again, about a person's life, you could make guesses about a person's life and you might, you'd probably get, you know, half dozen right about a person. You can't get 28 right. You simply cannot get 28 facts right and not miss a single one. But I think the blood clot thing finally just pushed me over after because then they finally did up confirming all the 28 facts. So they, you know, and they, you know that the, the problem was not so much I confirmed it. Okay, this is obviously a real life. This is obviously James Carroll Beckwith's life I saw. But the problem wasn't that accepting that. My problem was accepting what it meant. Because yeah. what it meant, what it meant was, is that my worldview, the worldview I'd held my whole life, was wrong. 
I mean, come on, you got to you have you have a worldview in your mind about how the world works and how things how things operate, and you realize you've been wrong. And the people you kind of snickered and rolled your eyes at all the time, who you believe in reincarnation, what have you, they were right and you were wrong. And that would tell you the truth. That was the hardest part for me. This whole thing was finally being able to accept what it meant. What does it mean to my life to accept this is true? Because it means you have to rearrange your whole philosophy, your whole way of thinking about what about what life is. And that's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't. Well, no. I mean, it 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 then gives you another perspective on so how many more were true or or I mean, you kept going though. You kept finding evidence. Well, what I mean, I mean, after I after I found after you confirm all twenty eight facts, what can you what can you say? Come on, <clears throat> I wish. Yeah. Believe me, I had more evidence in this case. I wish I had this kind of evidence in my murder cases. I would love to have this kind of evidence on a murder case because you know you got a conviction. There ain't no doubt in your mind. Come on. Every every twenty twenty eight facts, again, like I said, you could guess things and be right. I mean, for example, I saw him die in a large city. He died in New York City. But then I but at the time when I found that, I tried to write so I thought, Bob, a lot of people die in big cities. It don't mean anything. Come on. You saw him die, he died in New York City. Okay, that really don't mean anything. A lot of people die. I said he died in the fall. He died in October of eight of nineteen seventeen. And again, I told myself, Bob, a fourth people of you died in the fall. And I kept trying to tell myself during this whole thing, when I ever had to find a fact, I tried to rationalize my way out of it. But when I got mm-hmm. to the, the probably the miscarriage and no children and his mother died of a blood clot, nah, I, could, there, I couldn't find any kind of rational way out of that. There isn't one. There's, there's simply, there's simply the fact is this was James Carroll Beckwith's life that I had viewed during under, under, under hypnosis. That's all there was to it. Mm-hmm. So what did your wife think of all this? <laughs> My wife, she well, because actually during during this during this investigation, I, one of my biggest admonishments I always gave to my homicide detective was, do not get emotionally involved in your cases. When you get emotionally involved in your cases, you get enough tunnel vision. You get you you're so involved, so emotionally involved, you can't see the edges. All you can see is your straight ahead type thing, and you miss important uh-huh. facts. Well, I kind of, well, believe me, I knew I was really emotionally involved in this case. And so but I went and told my, I told my wife, and I finally told her what I was doing. She thought I was nuts. She really did. It took her a while. She thought <laughs> I was nuts. But anyway, I, I kept explaining. I said, well, come on, show me show what I got and everything. But she really didn't want to believe it, didn't want to see it. So she finally told me, so I'll tell you what, Bob. She says, I will, find, I will investigate back with, and I'll find the, where you found new this stuff. She is sure there's a book. My wife, incidentally, was also a police detective. She was a uh, child uh-huh. detective and, a, and a, a very, very, very good detective. I really admired her detective work. She was a very thorough, very good, very excellent detective. So anyway, she told me, no, Bob, you've seen this in a movie. You've seen it in a book. That's all there's I kept trying to tell her, no, there are no movies about him back with, no books about him. But she didn't want to hear it, so I'll find it. And I, and I was really, I was, to tell you the truth, that's what, kind of what I was hoping for. I was really glad to hear that because I, I felt like I needed a second outside investigationist, a completely unbiased you know, third-party investigation of what? Because I thought maybe Bob, maybe you are mostly involved in this case, and you need a different viewpoint to find something you haven't seen. Maybe there's something you have seen, and but you were so obsessed with this that you didn't see it. So I, I said, good. So she decided to look at it. So it took her about a month, and she didn't find anything. She found nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. I hadn't found. Already found. Now, because now she doesn't know what to say. So she really, but she still wouldn't. She still couldn't. Except that now I can see her point. I mean, come on, I experienced it's not her. 
So I mean, uh-huh. it'd be a little harder for her to accept it. But I, I was really glad to find out when she tried that she could not find anything I hadn't already found. There was absolutely nothing. And in the 19, early 1990s, there was simply nothing about Beckwith. No movies, books, or, or, you know, magazine articles. He simply wasn't that. He wasn't that good of an artist. He wasn't that famous an artist. So there would be no reason to have anything, you know, like that about him. Exactly. So she just decided to just let it go and and and. Well, no, her problem was she she was she actually advised me. So finally, she, we were talking one time. It used to, after a while, it got to, it kind of started upsetting her when I talked about Beckwith. It really did. It really kind of get on her nerve type thing. Because I don't think she uh-huh. wanted to believe it. I don't think, because again, you get to believe this, you have to change everything you've ever believed in your life. And that's not something you undo readily without a lot of proof. So oh, yeah. eventually, I was talking about Beckwith. Beck, she said, "Fine." She said, "Okay, hold on a second, Bob. So what are you going to say? So what?" Okay, she says, suppose you have proved this. Okie dokie, suppose you have. Suppose it's 100% true. What are you going to do about it? And, then, mm-hmm. and it told me at the time I really hadn't thought about that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. She says, what, what are you going to do with it? And I didn't, you know, at the time I really didn't know. At the time I had no intention at that time of writing a book or even telling anybody about it. And, she's, and she said, Bob, you need to keep your mouth shut. You need to take this to the grave with you. She said, please, captains, <laughs> do not talk about this. Please, captains, you might believe it. That's fine. You do not go publicly espousing this type of belief system. People will think you're nuts. And at that time, I actually kind of agreed with her at the time. But then, like I said, then I started doing some research around the police department, some kind of real quiet, you know, research to find out. And I found out that police officers have a, quite, a, quite a number of paranoid experiences. And that's what baby basically decided to make me write the book. Because they, well, well, I wasn't certainly wasn't the only one. Oh yeah, no, but but you did you did discover where he was buried too. Yeah, it was it was and, it was. I felt mean, at the end I felt this was too important. But to find it, you know, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the thing about finding like finding the painting in New Orleans to me that's too big a coincidence to be a coincidence. But you, uh-huh. it's okay because police officers don't like coincidences because in our investigation, you find a coincidence, 99 times 100, it's not really that big a coincidence. It's something somebody made to happen, want to look like a coincidence. Well, but you think about the Pentagon woman, if that's true, who made it happen? Okay, who could make that happen? And that, that kind of thing kind of makes you think, well, this was, this was something you were guided. You were guided to this painting. Somebody wants you to find this painting. Someone, something, some entity wants you to find this painting. And so you obviously need to do something with this. This is not something to keep quiet. If it's something to keep quiet, I would never know. I would never have found the painting. And I thought so. And I basically decided it was too important. The things I'd found were simply too important to keep quiet about. And that's why I wrote the book. Now, being a police captain and writing a book, it didn't. It didn't turn out well. And I, my <laughs> wife, my wife warned me it would not turn out well. Even my agent. My cousin told me that because at the time before this, all my books had been about police work in general, about SWAT teams, uh, you know, self-protection, you know, home protection, uh, and homicide investigation, various things. I police work. She's, my agent told me, said, Bob, if you do this book, you're probably you're going to have a hard time selling another book because they won't take you serious any long as a police procedure writer if you write a book like this. And you know, but again, uh-huh. I thought it was just it was simply too important not to. And so I did. And like I said, it, it didn't go well. It did not go well at the police department. They, the police department was not amused, to say the least. So, it, but well, I, anybody, again, I felt like I had to do it. But anybody who looked at to. the evidence that you had, 
you know, you 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 were driven, and I think that's a that's a great part of what you've you've done. I mean, you really applied your techniques and your skills and and your your nose for where to go next, and you were able to prove twenty eight. You you I think you proved twenty six, and then after the first publication of the book, you were able to prove the last two. I think. Yeah, yeah. The first one. This is actually a second edition. The first one. The first edition. I'd only be able to prove twenty six of them. But interesting enough uh-huh. about being a writer, you you hear from readers. You hear, readers want to contact you about. I had two of my readers who were were, were interested in my story. They did research on the last two. Were able to prove the last two for me. So I was actually able to prove all twenty eight. And you know, as a as a as a writer, you're always you always feel very good about that. That your readers felt your book was important enough that they wanted to get involved. That they actually. Wanted to, wanted to, you know, dig in and help type thing. So actually, two of my readers did a whole lot of research and helped prove my last, the last two facts. I was able to prove all twenty-eight. So, so from from the fact that he carried a walking stick and liked wine, to the fact that they had no children and his mother died of a heart attack, to to his death and where he was buried, even. Even I think one of them was um, the time of his death. One of your readers was able to explain the time of death as to as to why it, there was a discrepancy. And, yeah, and well, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's effective. You don't like facts that you got a little. There's something wrong here. With this, for example, here's the. On the I, well, I was doing research on Beckworth. One of the books I found that did have reference to him said he died of a suicide. I thought, wow, you know, I didn't see that anything in my regression. And so I called the New York uh, the New York City medical examiner. At that time, I was the head of the homicide branch. So I called him. I said, this is Captain Snow from Minneapolis, you know, head of homicide. And we talked. And I told him I'm interested in knowing what a man died of. And I gave the man's name to date. And here's enough. He didn't ask me why I was interested in somebody died in 1917. But he, was, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll look it up and I'll call you tomorrow. So he called me tomorrow and said, no, he didn't die. He died of endocarnitis. He said that's what's an infection of the heart valves. And if you look, if you look up in carnitis, the symptoms you can see in Beckwith's diary, the last two years of his life, he had the symptoms. He died of a heart attack, type thing. So again, like that fact, Bobby. Well, there's another another fact. According to his death his death certificate, he died at five at five p.m. in the evening. Okay, in October. Now, even in New York City, at five p.m., it's not dark because when I passed through the roof after I died, it was dark. It was lights everywhere. Uh-huh. It was dark. And I thought, now nah, there's something wrong, Bob. If he died at five. How can it be dark when you have it dark? So I did some more research in back when I got some uh, newspaper articles about his his obituary about he died. Well, apparently he he went on for a walk in Central Park and he had a heart had a heart attack from the endocarditis, and he caught a cab and brought him home. And he, he went upstairs to his room and died in his wife's arms, just dropped dead in her arms. Well, she had some kind of bad ta- attack. You know, I guess the shock it was so great. That she had a really, really bad attack, and they had to call a doctor for her, and it was several hours before they could, you know, get her get her back normalized again. And I, 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 I'm trying to figure out why would Beckwith's soul stay there, and I, I'm assuming he stayed because he really, truly loved Bertha. I think he wanted to stay uh-huh. until he was certain she was okay, and that's why it wasn't. It was a couple hours later before he actually passed through the roof and went, in, you know, to go to the, you know, into the next life. Uh huh. Wow! It's again one of the things that the police work. You don't you don't want little gaps. You don't want little gaps in your evidence. You want the evidence. Wait a minute, 
how, how could this happen? That's why, you know, again, you want to fill in all the blanks. This is one of the blanks that I had to fill in. Well, I, I think that, that because of your background, your ability to first um, isolate those facts that you could prove, hopefully, and then actually go about proving them is is something phenomenal. So many people, you know, there, there are people out there that want to be, you know, um, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar yeah. and, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I kind of, I, I don't snicker, but I chuckle. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, there's, for every one famous person, there's 10 million people who are not famous. And so everybody, sure. you know, I've talked to a lot of people, who, you know, since I've book come out, people who've been reading cars, and, and there's people who are just unsure they were, you know, Abraham Lincoln or they were George Washington or they were Napoleon or what have you. And you know that, sure, there's probably somebody who was Napoleon George Washington, but 99.99% of people, your lives are pretty mundane. Your lives are pretty, you know, most of your past lives are pretty mundane. You're just an ordinary person, you know, who was born, you know, got married, had children, you know, worked somewhere, worked a farm or worked somewhere else and you died type thing. Yeah. And that's so I'm always I'm like you I'm always a little suspicious of people who want to claim not not to saying it couldn't happen I mean they obviously their souls are you know the famous people's souls are out there too but there's not that many famous people compared to the billions of people who are not famous so the odds of oh, my yeah. being famous are are pretty small. Well, pretty I small. think so the... I'm always, I'm always a little suspicious. And see, as a police officer, I I I because interesting enough, people have always asked me now. Well, do you believe in you know UFO abductions and you know astrology and all this? No, they 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 can't believe. They have a hard time understanding why. If I could believe in incarnation, I can't believe in them. And I tell them, <laughs> if you bring me proof of astrology or UFO abductions, the solid as the proof I have a back with, I will believe in it. But see again, yeah, I, 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 just because I just because I believe in this, that's the only reason I did it because I have concrete, solid proof. That's the only reason. The only way I accept anything else, anything of these other beliefs, give me some, give me some proof, and I will believe it. And that's what basically one thing. It took a long time for me to accept with life. It took me a couple of years and a lot of research before I did it. Well, you know, just just out of curiosity, now you know that you were a famous, a, a, a well-known. <laughs> portrait painter or painter um, in a past life, have you at least gotten copies or prints of some of his artwork? Have I what? Excuse me. Have you gotten some? Have you gotten some prints or some copies of some of his artwork? Yeah, I, I've done a lot of research on Beckwith. Actually, his paintings never really have sold well. Interesting enough. It's, they 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 really they they never they never sell for much. They're not that good. Come on, I mean, to be honest, they're 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 all, they're competent. Now in Beckwith's day, if you wanted a portrait, if you didn't want to pay a whole lot for it, but you wanted a competent portrait, he could do it. The most he ever made his whole life for a portrait was a thousand dollars, and that was one of the Vanderbilts. John uh, uh, Singer Sargent, his good friend and roommate in Paris, had got. And they gotten the uh, I think I've gotten the job of painting a portrait of Vanderbilt. Some reason I'm not sure why. In those days, whenever you made a portrait of someone, you made two copies. Now, I don't know why, uh-huh. but he always made. So he talked Van. So John Sargent talked Vanderbilt into hiring Beckwith to make the copies, and Beckwith got a thousand dollars. That's the most he ever made wow. in his life. His, so his stuff was his stuff was not great. His stuff was competent, certainly. If you want to pay, you don't want to pay a lot. And see that that was that was the that was one of his things that really bugged Beckwith during his life. He didn't make he wasn't that good. So John Singer Sargent charged twenty five thousand dollars for his painting. This was back in the late eighteen hundreds. That was a huge huge amount of wow. money. And uh, William Chase, another American painter who was a good friend of his, 
He charged ten thousand dollars and and had people lined up to do it. Beckwith simply he could he would get usually six to eight hundred dollars for painting. That's all. Because the bottom line was he wasn't as talented as Singer. He wasn't talented talented as William Chase. He wasn't as talented as Whistler. He just wasn't that talented. So he couldn't get the money. And but but for me it made it better because if I'd have th- if I'd have thought I was Van Gogh or Renoir, <laughs> then you know you'd say nah you saw it in a movie you read in a book. And that's, oh, sure. and that's all there is to it. I mean, there's so many, there's too many facts about them out in the public domain that you don't know where you could have sorted them out. There is absolutely nothing about Beckwith out there, nothing. Well, he, and that's what made preferred. them more realistic, more believable to me. He he preferred to do landscapes and bright things, and and yeah. um, in, in the in the in the one where you looked through the window, it was it was. A very right. sunny, bright painting he, you were he, looking. He painted. At. He painted other things. He painted landscapes. He painted other things. He never could get any money off of them, though. He didn't make hardly any money. Ninety-nine percent of his money made as an artist was made doing portraits. Interesting enough, when I was doing the uh, request with Doctor Beck with uh, Doctor Griffith, I I'm, again I just blurred out. I, you know, she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm painting a portrait, Doc, doing a Hunchback Woman." And I told her, "Sir, I hate doing portraits. I just hate doing portraits, but I need the money." And funny, Beckwith said that probably 50 times in his diary. He hated doing portraits. Wow. He, he always felt that his real artist skill would be other things in portraits, but he had to do portraits in order to live. In order to make any kind of living, he had to do portraits, but he always wanted to do other things. He wanted to do landscapes. He, he, matter of fact, he did a mural at the, at the, at the, at the World's Fair in Chicago. And they, and they had a lot of people say, that I've got pictures of it, that that was probably his finest work. But unfortunately, after the... Uh, the the, uh, the the World Fair closed. They destroyed. They knocked it all down. But they always wow. thought that that was probably his best work. But again, didn't he, he couldn't win, sell the other stuff. Didn't he win prizes and stuff like that? For yeah, his well, yeah, yeah. He, 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 got, he got he got some he got some recognition for his work. Yes, he did. But he he got some. He won some medals and various. I mean, he was a competent painter. He wasn't a slob or a terrible painter or anything. He was very. His problem is his paintings didn't have the imagination. Didn't have the life and vitality that singers or Whistler or Monet or somebody other else's paintings has. His paintings were very very realistic. I mean if you want to portrait yourself, it looked like you. It was it was very you know, very realistic, very looked like you. But it didn't have again and didn't have the vitality or life that other painters' paintings had. It just, and again he was it just he wasn't that talented. He simply wasn't as talented as the other people were. And it really bugged him. If you read his diary he he whines, God, he was terrible whining in his diary about not, you know, about not having enough, you know, getting recognition, not making enough money, not being able to, you know, sell his other paintings, what have you. But again, I I think that was beneficial to me that he wasn't famous because if he had been famous and there were a number of books by him, yeah, you can't, you could never really believe a hundred percent that you hadn't seen the information otherwise. The fact there was nothing. So he was he was a technician, him, in other words. Yeah, yeah. The fact that there was, no, there was nothing about him makes it makes my my investigation much more credible, much much more credible. Well, it it made him a technician, and so are you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, again. Yeah, go. On, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, well, there has there there has to be some sort of a connection to a degree to some aspect of his life that reflects on yours or there wouldn't have been a point to all of this well you know the interesting part is before i believed in reincarnation my life looked like a pointless series of events that had no connection at all i couldn't see any real connection in my life between various events 
when I look at it from a reincarnation point of view, everything makes sense. It really does. I mean, the, the various things happen in my life now all point toward one thing, and that was me writing this book. It really, and uh-huh. see the fact that I become a police officer and a, and a homicide and a head of the homicide head of investigation for the division. And no, that was important because this was a tremendously difficult investigation. It really was. It, it took a lot of a lot of detective work, and I don't think a person without the kind of training experience I had, I don't think they could have done it. And I and I really think that's why that's why the, it fell to me. I really do. I almost felt like I was chosen because finding the painting in New Orleans. Come on. What's the odds of that really <laughs> happening? You think it's just it's just too the odds are too huge. And that's why I think it was I was, I was kind of guided to find the painting, and the fact I had the background and investigation come in tremendously handy because this was an extremely extremely difficult case to solve. It really was, and it took a lot, an awful lot of meticulous work. For example, read the diaries. I took me over a year to read all seventeen thousand pages. And the real problem was that Beckwith a lot of times wrote in pencil, light pencil. It was really hard to read, and he scribbled. As a matter of fact, there's one part uh-huh. of his diary where he said that he went back to read the previous year, but he couldn't read his own. He scribbled about it. He couldn't read his own writing. And I, Boy, I believe that was true. My God. But the point was I didn't want I, – but I studied every page because I felt there might be something on this page that would be so important you don't want to miss it. So I had to – you know, it took me, it took me uh, almost a year of studying every single page of his diary before I could find, you know, if I could, so I could make sure that I, every fact about his life that was recorded was there. Here's enough. A number of people have also asked me, well, okay, if Beck was so, you know, was so bland and unimportant, why did he keep his diaries? Why would you want to keep his diaries? And that's a good, that's a good question. The reason Beckwith, they they kept Beckwith's diaries is not because nobody nobody really cared about Beckwith. They really didn't. But Beckwith, during his days in the late 1800s, late 1900s, was a really social butterfly. I mean, he really was. He got around society a lot, and he knew a lot of famous people. He knew he knew he was he was good friends with uh, with like I said with Theodore Roosevelt. He and Theodore Roosevelt were lunch, were going to school to lunch together. He was good friends with Mark Twain. He him and his wife had a Beckwith and his wife had a house up up in the uh, Catskill Mountains. Well, and he would his next door neighbor was Mark Twain. When Oscar Wilde, the famous English writer, came to America, he was married a couple weeks. He stayed with Beckwith in Beckwith's apartment in New York. Beckwith knew Sarah Bernhardt, the actress. He knew he knew actually he knew William Chase. He knew Sardin. He knew Claude Monet. I mean, he, the, and the thing about his diary is full of little anecdotes about these people, ah. about his you know, about knowing Theodore Roosevelt, about about Mark how Mark. Of course, he called him Samuel Clemens. How Samuel Clemens would come to his porch, and you know, they tell he tell funny stories all night and all this kind of thing. And interesting, the village they were in in the Catskills was a dry village. There was no, no drinking. Now, anybody knows Mark, mm-hmm. anybody Mark Twain? No, Mark Twain was a drinking man. Well, Beckwith oh, yeah. was too. So, so they used to have these old plays, and they had a little incident where they they would sneak out of the play at halftime and go to Beckwith's house and get, and drink, then come back and come back. Because I had a lady who was writing a book about Mark Twain, and knew that I had read the Beckwith diaries, and she contacted me and goes, she said she didn't want to read all seventeen thousand pages, want to know if I remembered any instance in the diary about Mark Twain. And that's that's the one I gave her about them sneaking out for the drink during the middle, during the halftime of the plays. No, but anyway, the the point is he knew everyone. He was again he knew Oscar Wilde, actually Mark Twain, you know, you name it, Sarah Bernhardt, you know, everyone. And so his diary is just full of anecdotes about these people, and that's why they kept it. Not because they care. Nobody cares about Beckwith. They really don't. But they do care about it because it's great for you writing a book about one of these people. To have these little anecdotes in it, they have little personal anecdotes, particularly anecdotes that maybe nobody else has had before, and that's basically why they kept his diaries. 
Well, he adds a richness to stories that is, is really quite amazing. Now, <clears throat> you've published over 15 books and, and hundreds Actually, of articles. I need, to update, I, need to update, I need to update my bio. Actually, it's 18. I'm up to 18 books now. So okay. I really need to update my, update my bio. Yes, I do. Yeah, I had a book so, come out uh, last November. Last November. So are you are you back to writing about police stuff or? Yeah, yeah, yeah you, I'm writing are, true crime now. Okay. You know, I used to write I used to write things about police work about, how, about SWAT teams, uh, homicide investigation, sex crime investigation, family abuse. But you know, after a while, you ran out of really interesting subjects in, in about police departments. I mean, there's you really do. And so I've turned to the last my last three books have been all true crime books. That's why I'm, I'm working on another true crime book now, simply because true crime has a very good audience, and it really and it's it's you know it's 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 easy to write it because you have all the reference material, and again you have a you have a ready made audience for your work. So I'm, I'm writing mostly true crime now. So are, is true crime um, real cases that that you're reporting on or? Are- um, are the book are the books or stories are they about crimes that actually were committed? Yeah, no. Well, yeah. Is well, they're, actually, they're, they're crimes that happen in Indianapolis mostly, simply because I, okay. I, I have the local. I have the local. I was in when I was in homicide. Naturally, I, there were a number of cases in homicide. But I one of my books uh, published by uh, Random House. It was a book about uh, there was a murder in Indianapolis in 1971. Three businessmen, three young businessmen, were found in a house on in Indianapolis. They're bound and their throats were cut, and they were cut so severely they're practically decapitated. Now, wow! So anyway, they got so it got to be a gigantic, and it was a huge press thing in Indianapolis. And, and, and the thing was, these three men at this time had been had been starting in the microphone business. In 1971, the microphone business had just started. It was just it was starting big, and the, these guys had been working for another another man. They decided to leave him and start their own business in microfilm. Well. The problem was they sold a number of his customers, a number of his equipment and all this. And they, these guys were involved in some bad stuff. They were really involved in some dirty deals. They were dirty deals with people. You know, they, they, interesting enough, in 1970, they died in November 1971. In, in January 1971, they decided to have a contest. The three men decided to have a contest to see who could sleep with the most women. And so they actually <laughs> kept a scorecard in this house in the, on the South Street where they died of the women of each man. Each woman he slept with, and they keep it to keep a record. And at the end of the year, the winner they'd have to treat the winner to a big dinner. And so, when the police found these three guys, now they, the problem was they had so many suspects. You got all these because the guys once they slept the one they jilted, they'd go to move the next one. Same in the USA, so you had all these women that were suspects. Their husbands and boyfriends were suspects. The number of the business, number of their business, you know, rivals were suspects. They had dozens and dozens of suspects. And so in 1971, it's a case just it finally it finally just went on the shelf. They couldn't they couldn't solve it. The problem was every time they got they could delete one suspect, two more would show up. And these guys were involved in all kind of bad, not just the that the, the kind of the sex contest, but they had all kind of bad business deals. They were cheating people. They were cheating people and stealing stuff. And so they had tons of enemies. So anyway, the case basically got closed. Well, in in 2000, we got a we got a call from a lady down in southern Indiana. Who claimed she had knew who did it? But the, over the years, we'd had lots of people say that, so I didn't give it much, you know, belief. But I signed one of my detectives to look into it. Well, he was able, actually, able to solve the case. He was actually able to to bring the case to closure. 
And so wow. at the time of homicide, I knew I knew this was a good case. So I, I had a copy of the case file and my brother and took it home with me. He was to say, it was a, and, second, and so all my true crime books are crimes that happened in Indianapolis. That were, most of them are several. The cup two of them are cold cases that were eventually solved. And the last one was about a uh, a fraud turned bad that turned into murder type thing. So anyway, it's, it's basically true crime that's happened here that took a lot of detective work to solve. And again, you have a you have a ready made audience for true crime. A lot of people love true crime. And if told from a police officer point of view, I have a. A, view, a point of view, and I have different contacts that the ordinary crime writer doesn't have. Now I have, you know, but the police background plus I have a lot of contacts in the police department that you're able to get information and insight that your ordinary crime writer doesn't have. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so you 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 did this amazing book on reincarnation, and it slipped in with all of these other books. Um, yeah. Well, this was this was my only book I wrote. That wasn't really about police work itself. There was a lot of police work involved in this, a lot of investigation oh, involved in it. absolutely. This was about 18 books. It's the only one that's really not involved about police work. It really I know, is I the find only it one. So, and and it's, it's so strange to see a book on reincarnation in with, you know, mass murders and all sorts of other things. <laughs> so... Well, <laughs> Again, it's, it, it just again when it happened, it was just it was to me it was it was just important enough that I because because let me tell you a couple of things. A couple of times, my wife was death on this. She was death on me writing this book. She thought, Bob, you're just going to kill you. The police department is going, you know, you don't do this. But I, you know, and a couple of times, I I I said, yeah, she's right. I you know I you know I need to do it. And but each day, if I did it twice. I decided I'm not going to send back the advance. I'm going not going to write it. And both times I did it, that very day, something really bizarre would happen. For example, one time I decided, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to send it back. I'm going to call my agent and tell her to send it back. I'm not going to write the book. Because my agent wasn't real hot on me writing the book either, to tell you the truth. And, uh-huh. but, so before I, before I called my agent, I got a call from the Berry Hill Gallery in New York City. Berry Hill Gallery is a very upscale art gallery in New York City. And they, they, I didn't realize at this time the art world was pretty small, and people knew what was going on. And I had been contacting a number of art dealers about various things when I was writing the book about Beckwith. And now they had about that, but I didn't, nobody, I didn't ever tell anybody why I was writing the book or what the book was about, just the information about Beckwith. So anyway, this, this the researcher from the Berry Hill Gallery called me. He said, I understand you've been doing research on Beckwith. I said, yeah. Well, she said she wanted to know if I knew where any of his paintings were at, you know, that weren't ever for sale because they were going to have an exhibition of his work. And interesting oh, wow. enough, the exhibition was going to start the very day my book was scheduled to be released, the very same day. And we didn't know. And the thing we didn't know about each other. And then I asked her, I said, "Why would you do an exhibition back work? His work has never sold, never brought any kind of big money in. Why?" And, you know, she said, "You know, I don't know." She says, "Somebody come up with a couple of years ago. We thought it was a good idea. They've been working on this for several years." The same time I was doing this up on Beckworth, we didn't know about each other, and it was opening the very same day my book was coming out. And I thought, you know, at that moment, it's like, gee, you know, that's, it's one of those bizarre things to have you think, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not <laughs> supposed to not, you know, stop writing the book. Here's enough, though. You know how many, they, they had the exhibition for 30 days. You know how many paintings they sold? Zero. No, how many? They didn't sell a well, single well, painting. But he's not that Did game. you he's go? Not, they, they, yes, I did. Because I, I wanted to see there's some paintings I hadn't seen before, and he was say. So I, I actually traveled to New York and went, and went to the gallery and saw his paintings. But, again, they're they're nice. They're nice, but they're not they're not something that really grabs you, you know what I mean? They're not something you say, wow, i got to yeah. have that in my house. 
They're just not that good. They they didn't sell a single painting during the whole 30 days, not one, which I thought, boy, that's dark. Was the hunchback woman there? Did you ever locate the hunchback woman? Excuse me? Did you ever locate the hunchback woman? You know, I never did. Now, I, I told you a story. I may, may, may finish my story on that one then. Because after I started writing the book, I thought, boy, I need to prove, you know, part of my, my whole base of the story is a hunchback woman painting. I better, I had to be yeah. able to prove that it was it existed. So I actually went back to New Orleans to, the, to go to the art gallery. I wasn't gonna, still going to buy it at that time. You know, I remember, but I wanted at least a photograph or two of it, you know, so I could verify it was really, it was really there. So when I got back yeah. to New Orleans, and I went there, and the art gallery was closed. It had gone out of business. Oh, oh my god! Well, you know, I thought, oh, yeah. But what you do in police work, what you do, you start canvassing other businesses around there. And I started canvassing yeah. other, other art galleries around this one. And I finally found the gallery that had gotten the work there. They, they asked the guy remembered the painting. Yes, it was the Hunchback Woman painting. I said, good, good. That's all I want. I just want a picture of it. I get it. But I found something really interesting in those days is that art dealers religiously guard the, the identity of their customers for several reasons. Number one, you don't want to advertise or buy this guy's got you know a couple million dollars of artwork in his house. You know, that's dangerous. Yeah. Number two, they don't want other art dealers to know about them because they'll start you know they start trying to push off their art on them. So they, I said, really, all I want is a picture. He said, no. He said, here. He gave me a little pre-printed card that has my name, address, and phone number. He says, give us fill this out. I'll send it to the owner. If the owner wants to call you, he will. And so I huh. filled it out. Never heard from him. Never, never, ever heard from him. So that's why I had to go through, read the diary and find that in 1912, Beckwith mentions three different places about painting the hunchback woman to prove it was true. The painting is still out there somewhere, I hope. A lot of paint, well, a lot of Beckwith's paintings were destroyed. People bought them not for the painting, but the frame. He, he, Beckwith believed in putting his paintings in very nice, expensive frames. He really did. And a lot of his paintings were probably painted over and used for another painting. They just simply, you know, because when, after he died, his wife sold. He had ton. He had dozens of paintings left in his gallery, and she sold them. For, she sold them for practically nothing. She, of course, you know, she had no more source of income, and so yeah. she sold dozens, dozens of paintings for. She, she didn't really get very much money for them. So I, I, I feared an awful lot. His paintings have been, you know, they were that took the frame and threw the painting away, or they painted over the canvas and put a new painting on top of it. And I hope that I hope that Hunchback Woman is still around somewhere. But somebody. Obviously, one is they paid. You know, I don't. I don't think they paid the five thousand dollars because again, you can bargain. But yeah. somebody paid money, paid money for it, so I hope it's still there. But I, I have never heard. I've never heard of it. I've always watched uh, different. But I, you know, different. You know, I keep an eye on different uh, websites and everything about Beckwith's paintings. I never have seen it come up. Never, never have seen it. So it's, it's obviously still in a private collection somewhere. Now he, when he was young. Um, was crippled a number of times with um, rheumatism or arthritis. I can't remember which. It was rheumatism, yes. Rheumatism. See, that that um, was one of the reasons. It, that was one of the reasons that Dad finally let him become an artist because he was not healthy enough to actually work. Dad wanted again. Dad was a wholesale grocer. Wanted him to his. He had he had a couple other brothers and they were they did go into business with their dad. But Beckwith was never healthy enough. He was again. He had he was actually confined to a wheelchair for a while. And they they say you know, they say in various places to for different kind of cures and all that. But he, that's and eventually his dad finally relented and let him attend art school in Chicago simply because he was not healthy enough to, to do other work. 
but he was, you know, he was never ter- he was never terribly healthy. I mean, he always the rheumatism bothered him his whole life. They not didn't cripple him after like it did in his youth, but he had he had that he had those he had problems with the most of his life. And you're very healthy, right? No problems yeah. in that area at all. Knock on wood. Yeah, let me, t- let me tell you about one more incident. Let's tell you about. I was told this was another bizarre incident that happened. Another time, again, I had uh, uh, somebody somehow I'm telling you how this lady found out I was writing a book about reincarnation, and she was an astrologer. Okay, and uh-huh. while I was writing, I'm not sure how I'm not sure how she found out. Anyway, she contacted me. Says, "Do you do you read Beckwith's diaries? Do you know when he was born?" And she, because he says in his in his autobiography that he was born at nine o'clock in the morning while his dad was out hunting with a friend. She said, "Good. Well, I knew he was born September, you know, September twenty third, eighteen fifty two, at nine in the morning." She said, "Good. When were you born? I want to run a comparative astrology chart on oh, you." What a great idea! Yeah, I thought it was kind of foolish at the time. Come on, I don't really believe in astrology. I still don't because you haven't proved to me. So. <laughs> but but at the, at the, but the lady was nice and polite, and I thought, okay, I mean, how hard is me to get my birth certificate out and find when I was born? You know. So I said, okay. But then, so, but then I found out. Interesting enough. My birth certificate doesn't have a time on it. It just it tells the date, so. And so, and but also I thought, so I had to figure out how am I going to find what time I was born. I was born. But even when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, is this the kind of people I really want to be associated with, people who believe in astrology? And again, I decided at that moment, I'm not going to write this book. I'm, you know, I'll find out when I was born for this lady, okay. But I'm not, I, know, I don't really want to be associated. Do I really want to be grouped into these kind of people? Because, again, I didn't uh-huh. give astrology much belief. So, I finally, there's only one person left in my family still alive who knew when I was born. It's my aunt. She's the only one still alive. Everybody else is gone. So I called my aunt, and I says, I say, I need to know. Do you know what time of day I was born? And she says, yeah, you was born about 9 o'clock. Your dad was out hunting with your uncle. And, you know, at that moment, it's like, you know, after considering Beckwith said he was born 9 in the morning while his dad was out hunting with a friend, and I was born 9 in the morning while my dad was out hunting with my uncle. And it just caught me so stunned at that moment. It's like holy smoke, <laughs> you know. Again, it's a message. I'm not, not I'm not real, not that dense. You can pick up a message that apparently, apparently, uh-huh. this book is going to be written. This book needs to be written because again, these I are all say. coincidences. But you know, and the thing about all these coincidences that happen, one coincidence by itself, I could accept. You could use this a bizarre coincidence, you accept it, okay? Because okay, coincidences. I mean, you know, police officers don't like them. Occasionally, they do happen, but you don't have dozens. I mean, believe me, during the writing of this book. I had dozens, not just these two I mentioned. I had dozens of coincidences, a little bizarre coincidence, each one by itself, just a little bizarre coincidence. That nothing, if it's by itself alone, you would think nothing of it. But, but when it, when you group them together, it's too many. It's way too many. It's like whoa, you know, come on, how how many can happen? And you realize there's a message here that I'm supposed to write this book, and that's why basically okay. one of the reason I did it, even even over my wife, my agent's objection, and unfortunately. Both my wife and my agent were correct. It didn't turn well at the police department. It didn't turn out well for my writing. It took me five years after Beckwith came out before I could get another book published. It simply the publishers did not take me serious again as a as a police procedural writer. They simply didn't because uh-huh. of the book on Beckwith. I mean, and that's just some agent said it, it took five years. But after you know, if enough time passes, people forget everything, and I eventually did get back into writing. At the police department. It did not go well at all. This is not something a police captain publicly espouses. It simply isn't, because a lot of the people there thought I was off my rocker. And basically, what happened, they tried to force me to retire. Now, 
Of course, I'm civil service. You can't make me retire. Nobody can do that. Right. But what they did, I was in homicide at the time, a commander of homicide. And, again, we had an amazing low homicide rate and an amazing high clearance at the time. And they took me out of homicide, replaced me, and put me down to the citizen service desk. Citizen service desk where people come in to get police reports, get fingerprinted for jobs, what have you. It's basically a job where captains serve who are getting ready to retire. I mean, you, you, if you got like four or five months left before you retire, they put you there just yeah. before you retire. And that was the message I was supposed to get. Because interesting enough, at, I'd been a captain for a lot of time, a long time on the police department. I was a captain for over 20 years. And I had helped a lot of young officers coming up into the department. I had helped them into their careers, helped them do stuff. I'd always been good to everybody who worked for me, helped them. And so by the time I had two-thirds of the chief staff, the executive staff had worked for me at one time. And so I had several sources inside the chief staff tell me what was going on and tell me that the message I was supposed to get from this transfer is I was supposed to retire. Now, I didn't. That's right. I did retire eventually, but not right away. I'm too hard-headed. I'm too, you know, obnoxious and hard-headed. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't retire right away. But they, uh-huh. they, were, trying to, they were trying to force me. They were doing They were trying to put me in one crummy job after another until I would, find, I would leave. But and I and again I really couldn't be surprised. My wife had warned me, and I and I knew too that this would not go well at the police department, and it didn't. It didn't go well. But you know, you really didn't have a choice, did you? No, I really didn't. I really didn't. Too many things fell into place. Too many things. When I was researching this book, and write, you know, writing this book and researching it, too many things fell into place. Occasionally, I would have information actually about Beckwith dumped in my lap from places you wouldn't know. For example, after the hunchback woman was uh, disappeared, I couldn't find it at the painting. I was I was calling art dealers around to see if they knew, you know, who, you know, maybe they knew who had it. Maybe you know, because sometimes you know what's in somebody's collection, type thing. Maybe they uh-huh. knew who had it. So I talked to this one gentleman. He's an, upstate, an art dealer in upstate New York. About he was an owner of our art gallery. He said, well, he said I don't. He said, but I tell you what. He said, I have an expert on American art I used. He said, I won't buy any American art until she authenticates it. Apparently, I didn't realize that. Apparently, there's a lot of forgery in American art, and so she had to authenticate it. He says, when I have, when I have her call you. I said, well, okay, would you do it? But so anyway, while I was researching Beckwith during his diaries, he mentions, oh, maybe, oh, gosh, 100 times at least, how he's working on his scrapbooks, how he's working. I'm, tonight I'd work two hours in my scrapbook type thing. I could not find out where these scrapbooks were at. I had there was no information. I could not find where they at. So anyway, this this expert, this art dealer used called me about and I and I told her I'm looking for the painting by James Carl Beckwith of the Hunchback Woman, you know type thing. And she of course and she didn't know about it. She didn't know about it anyway. And just out of the blue, I mean I didn't ask her anything. Out of the blue, she said, "You know his uh, that his scrapbooks are at the Historical Society of New York City, don't you?" And it, you know, just kind of, again, oh. just come out of the blue. Not, yeah, I was like, <laughs> no, I didn't. So I actually went to New York to look at them too, needless to say, because I wanted to. Uh, you don't want to, if you're a police officer, even if you've got a case solved, I mean, you got this case, you got it pinned down. If there's other evidence, you got to look at it. You just do. You can't. Oh, yeah. You can't let evidence, because you know who knows what it'll say. It might go against what you find. So anyway, I, I went to New York and actually, and I didn't really find anything in his scrapbooks that that uh, would that. Uh, would you know go against anything I'd said? But the only thing, the really interesting part about the scrapbooks, he had a lot of pictures in there of people that he talked about in his diary, so I could you know I could see who the people were he talked about a lot. I might tell you something else about New York also. So that was part of my research, I went to New York for the but not only to look at the uh, 
at the for the scrapbooks, but I also went there to find see if I could find any places Beck would have been. You know, he had various addresses in New York, and there was nothing. All the places everywhere he had been had since. Of course, this was he died in 1917, and so all the places he had visited were gone. They, you know, there are new buildings there, new skyscrapers. But I had noticed on his death certificate, the one the medical exam from New York City had sent me. Uh, so I can prove he did wasn't a suicide. He died. Uh, it said he was buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is in Valhalla, New York, which is a uh-huh. suburb north of New York City. And now, yep. the whole time, the whole time I'm there doing research on Beckwith, I'm thinking, how cool would it be to go visit your own grave? I mean, come on. I mean, how, how many yeah. people in this life ever get a chance to go visit their own grave? And Not thought, a lot. Well, you know. Yeah, but now that but it was a little bit frightening, a little bit scary too. I know it shouldn't have been scary because you you think, come oh, on, Bob, you know what the what the heck? You know, there could be a ghost spirit there because it's right it's inside you. So I find yeah. inside, yeah, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go to Kensico Cemetery, and so I I I, I went. So the last day in New York, after I would I had finished up the historical society and hadn't found any of the buildings, I got on a train. I went to the Grand Central Station, got on a train, took it to Valhalla, New York. To go to visit Kensico Cemetery, and Kensico Cemetery, by the way, is a beautiful, beautiful, but it's a huge, huge cemetery, a beautiful uh-huh. cemetery. A lot of the elite, the, the elite of society in New York during the 1800s and early 1900s were buried in Kensico Cemetery. There's just tons of big, beautiful mausoleums and stuff. So anyway, I I went to the office and told them who I was looking for, and they made a map. They showed me a map of where Beckwith was. And it was a beautiful day, so I just decided to walk over there. They offered to give me a ride, but I decided I wanted to walk and kind of look over the graveyard. So I walked over it, and it was, he was, his, his grave was at the far end of the cemetery at the top of the hill. And so I, 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 went, over, I went up there, and then there, sure enough, there was, I got the map, okay, it's right over here. And interestingly enough, I found as I walked toward the grave, I started having an anxiety attack, and it was, a, I mean, a really serious anxiety attack. When I first became a police officer, when I was a rookie, and in my first couple of years, you'd have, I mean, you'd have these kind of things. Of, okay, you got to run. There's a guy inside this house with a gun. He's, he's, you know, he's shot a couple of people. You gotta go get him. <laughs> Don't kid yourself. That give you a little anxiety attack. And I used to have, you know, mm-hmm. the thing where you're, you'd feel electricity in your hands, you'd feel your heart palpitating, and I always had a funny. My left knee would always start shaking. If I haven't had any kind of Nervous thing, my left knees are shaking. And that's, that's what happens. I walked toward the grave. I could feel my heart palpitating. I was starting to sweat, and my left knee started to shake. And I'm thinking to myself, Bob, this is stupid. There's nothing in this grave but a corpse. I mean, any spirit that was in this body, there can't be any ghosts or any spirits here. Any spirits in this body is in you. And I kept trying to tell myself this. I kept telling Bob, this is stupid. But I could not stop it. I had this. I mean, I was. I would be. I could. I could just be shaking. I, my hands were shaking. I was sweating. My knee was just going like crazy, and I could simply could not stop it as I was looking at the grave. But while I was there, I wanted to get a picture of the grave, you know, to prove it. I wanted to prove myself. I wasn't scared. So I actually <laughs> left the grave for a minute. And it's funny as I got about oh maybe ten feet away, it all went away. The anxiety attack went away. It was. It didn't bother me again. So I found some people working in the grave, or a couple of maintenance people working there, and I asked the, one of the guys, would you take a picture of me at the grave and all, the, all that. And it turned out, actually, I put that in my original. My original, the, the first station book, has a picture of me at the grave there, a picture of me standing back at his grave. Oh. Anyway, so I went back, and I was guys, I'll go back. And when I get within, oh, maybe 15, 10, 15 feet of the grave, the anxiety start, it starts again. I start, I start sweating. I start, my, knees, my knee is shaking. My hands are full of electricity. 
I don't I don't know what it was. And so anyway, I said, I take a picture of me. And of course, it seemed like it took forever to focus. Thing. I'm sitting, around, and I'm trying to I'm trying to look calm and you know very collected and very confident. And inside, I'm you know I'm ready to fall apart. And I don't have no idea. Finally, he took the picture, and I went up and grabbed the camera and left. And I have and I have a lot of people tell me different theories of why this happened. I have no idea. Other than apparently, you're not supposed to visit your grave. Apparently, that's not something you're supposed to do. Why? I have no idea. But apparently, well, it's, it's not something you're supposed you to do. Probably because you have an anxiety attack. <laughs> I have, and I have no idea. I mean, I can't. I couldn't rationalize myself. Reason why? Why would I have an anxiety? Why? I mean, it's simply, all it is is simply a, a gravestone and a, a and a corpse down there. And you know, so why would that give you? I couldn't understand. Why would they give you anxiety? I have no. And I've had a lot of people over the years give me explanations for it, but I cannot think of a reason why it happened, other than the fact. I'm guessing you're not supposed to visit your grave. That is apparently a no-no. <laughs> well, in all of my experience in this field, and I've been in this field for over 50 years, I've never heard that it was a no-no. Um, it probably maybe was bringing it full circle to you that, that this was a reality, and that could be a tad upsetting. I, you know, I've had but, a lot of people talk to it. I, I, you know, I've had people do that. Interesting enough, I've also had a lot of people over the years want to give alternate explanations for what happened about Beckwith, that it wasn't a reincarnation, that it was something else. But and the only point is these are people have – some people told me, no, your mind left your body and went to this great library in another dimension, and you pulled a book off the shelf and had me Beckwith. This type, you know, oh, they're, the they're different things. Other people, I've had yeah. people tell me the devil. They actually, when I was in hypnosis, devil entered my body and devil made me see it type thing. And various, uh, <laughs> you know, I've had I've had people offer all kind of explanations. But you know, police officers believe in a thing called Occam's Razor. Occam Razor says the simplest explanation is usually the right one. We we go, yeah. we really do believe we do believe in that. But anytime you have a real elaborate explanation for something that's usually not true, the simplest explanation. Is almost always the right one, and to me, the simplest explanation is this: is I have Beckwith's memories in my subconscious mind, and when I was hypnotized, they simply came out. That's that's all there is uh-huh. to it. Even like I said, again, a lot of people give me a lot of, but nobody's ever gave me one that was even close to being simple. It's always these big elaborate ones, like I said, demons, demons possessing me, and like I said, going to another dimensions and various things. But I think the simplest explanation is simply these these memories are in my mind. And I was able to access them. In hypnosis, you can access your subconscious mind, where you can't normally yeah. do that, but you can in hypnosis. And that, to me, that's that was the explanation for it. Well, I think that that you know one of the best ways of proving incarnation is to convert a skeptic, and you know it certainly happened here. And well, yeah, what a wonderful um, way of of validating that 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 it's true excuse me gonna sneeze here that that reincarnation is valid i mean here you had a trained detective investigating something trying to prove that it wasn't and all you did was prove that there is reincarnation well sometimes a lot of times in police work let me in most homicide cases most my detectives go into cases you're pretty sure what happened you know that A did it, mm-hmm. and your whole your whole your whole drive then of your investigation is to prove it. But sometimes you're going to a case and you're trying to get this image. You realize, hang on, I'm going the wrong way. This ain't so. A didn't do it. B did. You have to turn around. Well, that's what happened in this case. Mm-hmm. My whole intent, the whole the investigation, was to prove it wrong, to prove there was no such thing. Because I because the, the problem is to prove it. To prove it, you have to change your whole life. You have to change everything about your life, about your whole worldview, 
everything you thought how things happened, you have to change it. Now, I'm not, I certainly wasn't willing to do that unless I had, you know, ironclad evidence. And that's why I kept looking for the one disproving fact. I could have found one mm-hmm. thing about my regression and Beckwith's life that weren't true. That would have been, that would have that would have been good. Now, but then I could have said, "Nah, there's something fishy. Something's not true. This is not a real memory." Because you know you wouldn't you wouldn't say that we I you know I want yeah, we didn't have kids. My wife had kids because you couldn't have kids. If you if you really had kids, you know if you really did have kids, you could you couldn't say that because it wouldn't be a real regression. And that's what I was looking for, but I couldn't find mm-hmm. it. It never it never it never showed up. But again, I'm but the, you, the problem was I, I wanted to just prove it because hey man, come on. This is not something you don't, you don't really want to believe in these kind of things. Because, again, this is not something that average police officer believes in unless you had solid, rock-hard evidence, which I did, finally. I had to get solid, concrete evidence before I would accept it. Well, I think one of the, the greatest things about this is, you know, you, you went through this two years, three years, whatever it was, you wrote the book, you published the book, and you got back to your work. And it was almost as though... You know, you had to write this book before you were going to go back to what you were comfortable with and what you enjoyed doing and stuff like that. I mean, this was an obsession, and but um, it was. It, 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 interesting, it, interesting it, enough, as I, to, I told you we had I had all kind of little bizarre coincidences, like the you know the birthday, you know this kind. Of, all these, I had dozens of these little bizarre coincidences happen. Interesting enough, once the book was published, it's like a door slammed shut. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I have, I, and I have, I have had nothing since. Absolutely nothing. It was now, all, the all, all, all of them stopped. All the, all the little coincidences, all the little information, all the little things. Every little thing stopped. It's like, a, like again, like a door slammed shut. Once the book was published, I'm, I'm, I feel like, well, I guess I did what I was supposed to do. I've, I've done it because, because again, I, I would always well, have these little yeah. things that little pop up and you say, oh, that's, that's odd, you know, that's strange. But again, by itself, be nothing. But, <laughs> This is the you know the the thirty fifth little coincidence type thing you think you know, but once the book was published, that was it. It's a, they stopped completely, and they have ever since. So I I'm, a, but you know, I'm assuming. It, it no, I think I think it was important that you write this book because it does validate it 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 shows a, a, an investigation that absolutely proved this that that in your case especially, reincarnation does exist. And the fact that you didn't turn into a new age woo-woo person is even better because, you know, if you had, if you had decided to ride this train, you know, and go into the new age stuff and and all of that, it would have in many ways diminished the authenticity of what you did. Well, again, I've had a number of people who simply cannot believe that I don't. I'm not a believer in astrology and you know very you know crystal power and all this kind of things. But my point being, well, give me the same amount of proof, and I will. If you could give me the same kind of proof that I have my back with about astrology, then I will believe in it. But they don't. Nobody, nobody has that kind of proof. It's simply not available. Type, and so I don't believe in it. I'm not going to. Again. You, believe me, they took me. It took me, drag, you know, dragging me, screaming and kicking to get me to believe reincarnation. It, it, it wasn't an easy thing to do. I was again, I was dry, fingernails on the floor, being drugged into believing this because I didn't want to <laughs> believe it. I really didn't. My life as a police well, captain was great. It was all very rock solid, very, you know, very, very good. I was on a really upward mobility path in the police department at that time. Being the head of homicide branch is probably the most prestigious position in the police department. They have the homicide. It really is. So I was really on an upper mobile path before this come along. And he goes to say, after writing this book, 
I took a serious nosedive. My my career basically <laughs> was over as a, as a police guy. It was basically over tied type thing. But but again, I don't I don't regret any of it. I really don't because I I felt like it was a story. It was just simply too important not to be told. It was it's too many things happened that I thought the story just had needed to be told. And I, you know, regardless of what it does to me, what happened to me, that's not really as important as as to pass along this information for people. It really wasn't. So I I you just let it go. Don't worry about it. You know what happened. Well, in many cases, you know, when people tell you about their past lives, um, usually they're so far back they can't be they can't be researched or or looked into, and it does make it hard to actually believe in reincarnation. I mean, to to really concretely believe in it, you've you've got one of the best examples I have ever seen of reincarnation, and what's great is why you believe it. You, you probably will play I doubt it with other people to a certain extent unless they've gone through the same kind of um, process that you have in order to really prove that they know who they were. Um, like I said, there are lots of Cleopatras and Julius Caesars out there and yeah, Henry I, the I, Eighth. I, 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 and, I, during, during my time when I wrote this book, I've given a number of talks. I've been to various conferences. People have been to various conferences. And I met a lot of other people who claim uh, you know that they they know what their past life was, but I never had anybody had any real kind of proof. You know you, you uh-huh. know because you know there's there are people you know uh, for example one gentleman uh, he had, he believes that he was a Civil War general because he he went to, he went to this uh, battlefield and he felt this you know this feeling of belonging there, and he got a picture of the Civil War general who's in charge there and he does, and he does look like him. I mean he does. I mean he looks like he looks a bit like him, but is that proof? Is that no. really proof? See, there's no. my problem. Is that I've never ever talked to anyone who had proof. I mean, that's, I'm talking proof you can present in court. This is the, you could say, Judge, here it is, and it'd be accepted in court as evidence. I've never, I have never ever talked to anyone yet who had that, who had that kind of evidence that couldn't be, that couldn't be explained other ways. In other words, because you know, there's also there's also a number of people who have claimed things, and later on you find out that it wasn't really true type thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. where people have made up stuff and what have you. And so I'm always believe me when anybody tells me they've proven a past life, as hard as it was for me to do it, I'm very skeptical, because usually people will accept just one piece of proof, one or two pieces of proof. For example, you know, the, this person it looks like him, and I'm, I'll admit he does look like this general. He does, but is that proof? I mean. Because I I would think if you looked enough old photographs you could find it look like you know you could find somebody you look like you know if you look long and hard enough, and I, I mean I admit that is that's interesting, but is that proof? I don't I don't consider that proof enough that I would say yep this is a absolutely this is a proven case of reincarnation. I just don't. I mean to well, me have you, seen you have a picture to have much more proof. Excuse me. Have you seen a Have you seen the picture of Beckwith? Do you? Yes. Oh yes. I, yes. Of course I have. I would people, imagine people, you don't resemble him. People say that I don't see that. People have told me that, that I look like that. I don't see it. Now, maybe, I don't know. Of course, you really can't see yourself. How other people see you? Of course, you're seeing yourself from your eyes inside. People have told me that. And there's even a gentleman who I've had I've had a number of dealings at conferences, and everything, who claims that you do carry similarities over from life to life. He claimed that it's in the DNA you carry over physical resemblances and things from previous lives. But I, I don't know. I, I can't see the resemblance to me and back when other people say they can. I don't know. It doesn't look, it doesn't look like to me.
But then again, I, I can't see myself as out from the outside. Everybody else sees me, so I really can't say for sure. And my point being, I've had a number of people would say that we were saying, "Well, do you have any artistic ability?" And I really don't. I really don't. Matter of fact, I was a summa cum laude graduate from college, and I was I was did I always got I got straight A's in high school and most of my grade school days. The only one time I ever life I ever got an F in any any subject matter, and that was an art class. That's the only time I ever got an F my whole my whole life. But you know, you think about it. People ask me, "Well, should you carry? Don't you have artist you know, artistic abilities?" But you think about it. Why would you? I mean, you've already done that. I mean, think about it. You've already done that. Yeah. Why would you want to carry it over the next life? But a number of people are convinced you do carry it. You do carry it over. But I, I, never, could I, see, I, I, I never could see why would you? Why would you carry it over? You've you've done that in that life. You've done it. Why do it again? Why why repeat it again? Why wouldn't you go for something new? Well, there are there are, for instance, children who who come, you know, at, at the age of three and four, are accomplished pianists and things like that, and they do say that that is carryover from a past life, and I would almost have to believe that it was, um, but but no, you you have very good points here, and what I love is you have this book on reincarnation mixed in with all of these other. Um, detective things and and police matters and things like that. I, I think that it's a book that that it, you know I, I I would encourage everybody to pick up a copy of it and read it because you know throughout the entire book you you keep trying to prove something isn't and all you do is manage to prove that without a doubt it is. Which is so cool. and again, like I said, occasionally in police work that happens. You're 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 going yes. for A and it turns out to be B, and that's what happened in this case. So I, I was really dead set on proving this wasn't so, but eventually you eventually run and realize I'm heading in the wrong direction. Eventually, like I said, after the facts kept accumulating, you know, you'd find because I had 28, and you find yet you get 10 or 12, you're thinking, come on, come on. But I kept rationalizing the whole way about okay, so so what, so what? I don't prove anything. Don't you know? I kept trying to find one rationalization after another. But after a while, especially with, especially when I about the no children and the mother dying of blood clot, as I said, you you have to face the fact you're heading the wrong direction, Bob. You turn around. Well, it, it is and, true. It is true. And every time but you, you know, came I, close to stopping, something fell in your lap that kept you going, which was amazing. Yeah, something slapped me upside the head and told me to turn around. You're going to do it anyway. But you know, in a way, though, this to me, reincarnation is a much easier belief system than others because and you always find it hard to understand if you only have one life, okay, if you only get one shot, why do bad things happen to good people and good things to bad people? Does that make any sense to any kind of, any kind of universe? Why would people? Why would bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? You know, it doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. Or why? If you only got one life, and there's a, there, you believe there's somebody controlling the universe, and there obviously is, but you believe this person controlling the universe, why would you get a person on one life and kill them and kill them when they're, when they're a baby or kill them when they're a young child? What what would be the point if you only mm-hmm. got one life? What would be the point of, of killing a one or two year old? That happens, you know, as you know, more than people like to think. Why would that happen? Why would why would that happen if you only got one life? Whereas if you look in the reincarnation viewpoint. It's just one blip. It's just one blip, and it's maybe it's meant to to help somebody else adjust something in their life. I mean, you you live till two years old and die, and maybe it's meant to have your parents learn how to deal with this. But it's not a big deal because you're, this is just one of maybe hundreds and hundreds of lives. So it's it's not it's not a big deal. And the thing is, people always think, but you know, think about you know how come some people have it easy and some people have it hard. But think about reincarnation. 
is that everybody gets the different shots. I mean, one one life you might be an untouchable in Calcutta, and next life you're a Donald Trump type. I mean, each life everybody gets everybody gets their shot at each of them. Beckwith himself had a very actually had a very comfortable life. He really did. He didn't really have too much bad happen to him. He had a pretty comfortable life, and I think you know. I mean, he was always God. You listen to his diaries. He was a like I said, he was a crybaby. He was always complaining about about money. But actually, at the end of his life, he was pretty well off financially. He wasn't really that bad off financially. Him and his wife, you know, did did fairly well type thing. But the thing uh-huh. is, again, it's, it's, if you go through, if you believe in reincarnation, even if you have a bad life, this one, you know, next life, you know, they're going to be different. You're going something's going. You're going to experience different things in different lives. And so, my point is. In reincarnation, life is fair. Because if you just look at things of one life, if you think you only have one life, there's no other life, just this one, life is really unfair. I mean, bad, like you said, bad <laughs> things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. But if you look from reincarnation viewpoint, life is very fair. Because, sure, you might have a, might, bad things might happen to you in this life, really bad things. But next life, you have all kinds of good things happen to you. It evens, it evens itself out. And it also helped me a little, a little bit in my homicide because – a lot of times in homicide, you see young people snuffed out. I mean, these kids are maybe just teenagers or preteens. And you think you go to the, you go to the scene, they're they're laying there dead, and you're thinking, what was the point? What was the point of this uh-huh. person's life? If you you've only lived to be 15 years old, you never experienced anything or did anything, you never really contributed anything or anything. What was your point? But if you if you believe in reincarnation viewpoint, you th- you realize this is just one little blip. On a lifetime of, of a, on a you know scale of hundreds of lives, so it, it doesn't really mean it's not really unfair. The life isn't that unfair. Life is actually very fair. It's just you know uh-huh. you, your next life you might live to be ninety years old. Who knows? Type thing. That's why so, if, so it, it, to me it's it's a much easier to now now that I believe in reincarnation. It's easier. You feel better about the world. You do feel better about the world because you realize that overall life is actually fair. It really is. Life yeah. is fair. Everybody gets the same chances, just different lifetimes. So it really has changed your philosophy of life. Exactly, exactly. I do have, and it took me a long time to to, to actually erase my prior beliefs and and put these in. It was, it's a harder thing you do, hard thing you think to just completely erase all your your previous your previous beliefs system. And replace it with a brand new one, especially after you know uh-huh. living your whole life with the police. It was that that was to me that was the hardest thing about the Beckwith experiences. Not so much accepting it or proving it, as actually applying it to my life, where I could actually just basically erase my previous belief system and replace it with a new one. But I like the new one. To me, the new one is much easier to live with because I, again, I realize number one that life life is fair after all, and number two, you you know. If you know people die and you're really always sad about, it, but you know they don't really die. They'll come back. Maybe now you'll never see them again, but you know they'll you know they'll come back eventually oh, yeah. somewhere else. To me, that's a reassuring it, feeling too. It, it really is, and and uh, in your line of work, um, it, it 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 I would imagine it it changed a lot. Um, are you still friends with a lot of the people that that you worked with? Yeah, I kept a little did, bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it just it it seems you had you know thirty you know what twenty eight years thirty eight years thirty eight years um, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah, but it, it was it was great. It was a great. Like I said again, I never want to be a police officer, but it was a great because I got a lot, you know tons and tons. I got enough material lasts me a lifetime to write about, and that's <laughs> all I really want to do. I want to be a writer, and you know that's again part of my thing. I think why I was guided to write this book. 
not only was that guy to be a police officer, because whoever would write this book, you had to have a tremendous amount of investigative skills, but you also had to know how to write. You had to write. This was not my first yeah. book. This was, you know, I'd, I'd already written over 100, I had over 100 articles of short stories published in various magazines, and I had written, I think this was my, my, my sixth book. So it wasn't like I didn't have any experience. To me, this was all a guided thing where the, or whoever runs the universe needed somebody who was a detective and could write. And I basically, basically, that's why I, I was apparently selected to do this because I, I do felt like I was selected because when I look at my oh, life yeah. now, every, everything seems to fit into place and me pushing me towards this one, this one end of writing this book. For example, my whole life, I've always been an overachiever. Always, my whole life, I've always been a really big <laughs> overachiever. And that's really important for a writer. You cannot oh, be yeah. a successful writer without being an overachiever because writing – Particularly when you first start, is a tremendously discouraging profession. I mean, you oh, yeah. you really you really meet a lot of rejection, a lot of discouragement, and so you have to be an overachiever. You really do. That overachievers never give up. They just stick with they stick no. with it and stick with it until they finally they <clears throat> finally conquer it. And that's what I did. And if I I really think if I hadn't been overachiever, I'd have given up writing probably years ago because it, it's really <laughs> discouraging at times it really it's great at times when you get things done but for everything i've got published i've got at least 100 different rejections on other things you, it's something wow. you have to learn to live with as a as a writer but being an overachiever Absolutely. you don't that, 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 you don't let that body in that's why i look back at my life now and i see everything that happened to me to make me an overachiever and to, to make me a writer and a police officer everything was kind of guided it really was and just I, I fell into a lot of things well, that turned out to be per, you know, necessary. We we are almost out of time here, and and I do, I do want to thank you so very very much. I do want to remind people that that the name of your book is um, is Portrait um, of a Past Life Skeptic. <laughs> Portrait, yeah, por- Portraits of a Past Life Skeptic, and and it was a fabulous book. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and and I I enjoyed. The way you wove your your skepticism in and 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 how it was hammered away so beautifully throughout the entire book, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show tonight and sharing your story and um well, thank you for inviting highly me. recommend people oh my pleasure and and i I have my friend Chris at Curious Times to thank as well for suggesting you because um Frankly, I'm I'm not so much into police books, so I probably wouldn't have found your book had it not been for her. But but I do appreciate it. I do appreciate your spending the time to to explain your story because it's fascinating and you are obviously a convert and it's fabulous. So <laughs> thank you so very much for being on Nightlight with us tonight. Well, well, thank your friend for recommending me and telling me I really appreciate it. I will do that absolutely. Thanks a lot now and good night. Oh, thank you. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to um, talking to you next week. And um, have a good night. Have a good week. And do some reading. It's a great way to educate yourself and might even drop some of your skepticism. Good night now. <laughs>